Hashem, Hashem, Naseh, V'Natzliach, Shul Torah, welcome, very good to see everybody, all the new faces, all the old faces, Baruch Hashem, it's a, uh, the, uh, this particular shiur, this Tuesday night shiur, Baruch Hashem, has, uh, has had a lot of siyat dishmaya, we're up to number 94, and uh, the last two chapters of the uh, Mishnayot, of Pirkei Avot, are much, much longer. As you can see, we're actually the third shiur already on the same Mishnah. Well, Mishnah Hei Chet, which is 5-8. Uh, we're on the... Uh, yeah, we're, good. Uh, we're on the third part of the same Mishnah because each one of the Mishnayot is very, very deep. The next Mishnah is the same thing. And again, we could do... Ten Mishnayot in one shiur, if you just want me to read the Mishnah and just say, okay, this is good, and you know, we'll finish and move on. But the whole point of learning Torah is to be toiling Torah, to, to go deeper into the issues, to understand why, who, what, when, and how. How to connect it to our day-to-day lives, how to connect it to our parasha, and so on. Uh, so before we start, we'll do some Ilui Nishmat and Refuah Shlema. And then I'll give you uh, some basic updates of what's going on locally. And uh, Bezat Hashem, we'll start with the shiur. So uh, the shiur will also be for Ilui Nishmat Nilza Bat Irin, for a refuah shlema of uh, David Ben Doris, Doris Bat Jora, Levana Bat Sara, Sara Bat Levana, Ovadia Ben Levana, um, uh, Elisheva. Chaya bat Sara, Dvora bat Mercedes, Chana bat Miriam, Steve, Lipnin, Ben Avram, and all of Am Yisrael, Bezat Hashem, will have a refuah shlema, refuah ha-nefesh, and refuah ha-guf. This week we're in Parashat Truma. וידבר אדוני משה לאמור דבר בני ישראל ויקחו לי תרומה מאת כל איש אשר ידבנו ליבו ותיקחו את תרומותיי. So the parasha begins with something very interesting where Hashem יתברך tells משה רבנו speak to the children of Israel and let them take for me a portion from every man whose heart motivates him, you shall take my portion. What does it mean for every man whose heart motivates him? In essence, what he's asking is tell all of Am Yisrael to give some tzedakah. shekel. Half a shekel. But he says, make sure that their heart motivates them. The next verse says, This is the portion that you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and copper. And turquoise, and purple, and scarlet wool, and a few other different things. But, interestingly enough, he starts off with gold, silver, and copper. Zav, kesef, unichoshet. Zav is gold. Kesef, aside from meaning money, it also means silver. And Nechoshet means copper. So Rabbi Faim has a very nice pirush 
on what really Hashem is saying here. The Chachamim, the Chachamim are saying that Hashem is actually telling us, make sure that each person gives machatzit to Shekir, but only if his heart motivates him. Meaning, I don't need your money. Everything is mine anyway. But if you want to give tzedakah, now's the time. If you want to be the kli, you want to be the tool that I use to build the tabernacle, you want to be a partner in tshuva, you want to be a partner in kedusha, you want to be a partner in things that are meaningful, and not just stuyot, not just buy uh, bitcoins and cars and watches and houses and another extension to your house and all the other things that we do with our life. You want to be a partner in something meaningful, something that actually lasts beyond this world. Now's the time. But only if your heart motivates you. Meaning, don't think you're doing me any favors. Don't do me any favors. And now, he gives details. Take from them gold, silver, copper. Meaning there's different levels of giving. Because each person has a motivation to give. But each person has a different, uh, you know, they may all have motivation to give. But one guy has motivation to give 50 cents. Another guy $1.50. Another guy $3.50. Another guy a whole $10. Another guy maybe 25 bucks. The other guy 100 And the Gvil, $300. The Gvil. He made a million dollars this year, but he gave 300 bucks. But he wants you to make sure that you use at least $150 and advertising to tell people he gave you $300. It's like the people that give a lot of money, they usually want you to advertise they gave a lot of money. They give you a million, they want you to spend a half a million on advertising that they gave a half a million dollars. So he says there's three types of givers. Now the frame says the following. Zav, gold is rachetevot, ze'anoten bari. Each one of the letters of the word Zahav stands for a word. Ze means this anoten bari. This giver is healthy. What does it mean this giver is healthy? He says this guy that's giving, that's, he's a gold level giver. Not necessarily that he gave a lot. He may have a lot and he gave a lot. He may not have a lot, but he still gave. What does it mean? He gave before problems started. He's not giving because somebody's sick. He's not giving because, listen, do it for, make sure to save my uncle. What? What happened? Oh, the doctor said he has three hours to live. Can you, can you save him now? Okay, you should have gave it to me before those three hours. He's saying before anything bad, nothing bad's happened. Baruch Hashem, everything is good. Good marriage, the kids are good. Everything is good. But I'm giving because I want to be a partner with Hashem. He's a healthy-minded, healthy spiritually, healthy physically. Everything is good, but I still want to give. This is a healthy giver. Kesef stands for Rashetavot, Kshiroe Sakana Poteach. Kshiroe Sakana Poteach means when he sees danger, he opens. What opens? Opens his pockets. Opens his hands. Starts to give. What does it mean? A guy starts seeing, oh, market's starting to drop. Maybe this is a correction. Oh, it's only 10%. If it's 10%, if I give extra stakat, now I'm going to give the ma'asir that I already owe for three years. I'm going to give the ma'asir now, so maybe Hashem is going to stop the whole market for me. 
You know, the market's supposed to correct. It already doubled in the last couple of years, but no, it dropped 10%, but I still didn't make my million yet. I only made one million. I didn't make two. So maybe if I give 10,000 now, then Hashem's going to change all of nature for me. He sees danger. He sees all of a sudden he's coughing a little bit. He's coughing a little bit. And the doctor says, listen, it's not a normal cough. It's not a normal cough. You know why? It's a little blood coming out. It's not a normal cough. It's a little blood coming out. You got to get some checks. He doesn't know what it is yet. He doesn't know what it is. But he knows something's wrong. He sees danger. Danger is on the horizon. There's a market correction. The wife doesn't uh, pay attention to him anymore. The husband doesn't pay attention to her anymore. He forgot the anniversary. The kids don't want to go to school anymore. The kid came, she caught the kid with no keep on for the first time. The boss didn't answer your messages. You didn't get a raise this year. He sees Sakana, he sees danger. Not verify. He doesn't know. He's not fired yet. He's not sick, Barmina. Nothing. But he sees there's something going on. Okay, okay. Before it's too late. Hey, hey, how much? How much? 100? 100 is enough? 200? How much? How much you solve this danger? What do you mean? What are you protecting? I got a million dollar portfolio. You want to protect a million dollar portfolio with $100? Do me a favor. Put the $100, million, $100 in the Koopa box. In the little Staka box. What are you going to do with $100? You're trying to protect a million dollar house with $100 Staka? People spend, people spend millions on shtuyot. You tell them to do a mitzvah, they're like, oh, why so expensive? Rav David Yosef, his son, he's a big tzaddik, he comes to America often, speaks English perfect, big tamit chacham. He has what's called ein tova. What's ein tova? We hear a lot about ein ra. Ein Ra, somebody looks, if he looks at your car, just expect you to get a flat tire at the best case scenario. Worst case, the car's going to blow up in a week. That's Ein Ra. People look at your car, they look at your house, they look at your wife, they look at your husband. Bar minan, bar minan, what's going to happen in a week? It's already a clock. The clock ticking, it's, you're finished. He tells you, wow, you had a good job. Expect to, be just, expect to fill out the paperwork for unemployment. Wow, you guys look like a nice couple. You're happily married. Expect your wife to give you a divorce in a week. What happened? Oh, I've always didn't like it. What do you mean always? All of a sudden, always? Guy has ein ra. There's people, mama's jealous. They look at you and they give you a compliment, but not because it's a compliment. It's, they're reminding you that you really shouldn't have it. It belongs to them. They want it. They don't want you. They're not happy that you have it. They act like they're happy sometimes. With a smile. Ein ra. But Rav David Yosef have Ayn Tova. What's Ayn Tova? He mamash is happy, from people that know him personally, he's mamash happy to see other people succeed. So much so that he's one of the only people, that I know of at least, that's willing to share his tomim. People that donate to him, to his, to his kolels, to his yeshivot, to different things that he does. He knows there's different rich people. He tells other people, listen, you know, you need money for your kolel? Sure, call my guy. You need money for your yeshiva? Sure, call my guy. Have a guy. He has a lot of money. But he gave you money. That has nothing to do with you. Call him. Maybe he's going to give you money too. This is completely unheard of. Why? Because most people are scared. Most people, they're scared to show, you know, tell other people about their donors. Because they waste it. If he gives him, maybe he's not going to give me. People have a 
limited world mentality. It's the same thing in business, by the way. People are always scared that the competition opened up shop next door to them. They don't have any emunah in Hashem. And they think that just because this guy opened up shop next door, that means they're going to get less money. They're going to make less money. Or they think just because somebody came up with a different product that maybe is better, that means that they're going to go broke and they all start getting stressed out, start taking pills to calm down. People are no emunah. So someone Ain Tova, Imamash likes to help other people succeed. He says a story. He goes to come to America one time and he comes, he says a story himself. And he came to a rich guy's house. And uh, as soon as he comes to the house, oh Hashem, big house. Big house, more rooms than there's people. And he says, Baruch Hashem, everything's good. How you doing? Oh, yeah, listen, what do you think of my mezuzot? I just got new ones. Oh, Baruch Hashem, good. Mazal tov. He goes, yeah, the guy's a thief. Who, who's a thief? Oh, the rabbi has sold me the mezuzot. Can you believe it? $150 a mezuzah? Can you believe this thief? $150 mezuzah. I have 10 rooms in the house. I have to spend $1,500 in mezuzot. What a thief this guy is. Rav David Yosef said, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I waited. And now he wanted to show me the ten rooms. He wanted to show him the house. If someone has ten rooms. It's not because you have ten people. It's because you want to show the ten, ten rooms that are empty. In case people come. So he shows him the rooms and he starts showing him the closet. Because you see these closets, what kind of wood this is? This wood comes from Italy. The best wood maker in the world made these wood special order. $150,000 I spent on these closets. $150,000. Can you, can you smell what kind of wood this is? It's beautiful, right? Rav Yosef says, what a thief. He goes, ooh, the guy that made the closets. No, Kvodarav, he's my friend, I know him. Don't say, don't say it. He can't say, he's my friend, I know him. He's not a thief. He goes, a thief, $150,000 for closets? He goes, Kvodarav, you don't understand the wood industry. That's why you're saying it's a thief. And he says, your ears should listen to your foolish mouth. You don't understand the, the holy world. You don't understand what a valuable mezuzah is. You're thinking that $150 is expensive. A real mezuzah should cost you $500, $1,000 if you really want a mezuzah for a house like this. One mezuzah. But you're thinking $150 is expensive. Why? You don't know anything. But you call Easy. We're, we're in a hurry to call the rabbi a thief. We're in a hurry to call the rabbi a thief. So Shemit Barach says, if you are giving me with a full heart, za'av. If you're already seeing danger on the horizon, but you don't know what it happened, kesef. Seen danger. But then there's Nechoshet. Then there's copper. What's Nechoshet? Netinat chole shomer tnu. This is the giving of someone that's already sick that just says, just give it to him, give it to him. Why? He's in his deathbed. He says, I'm in five hours to live. Just give him whatever he wants. Maybe he'll save me. It's too late, Rabotai. He's in five minutes to live. Sometimes people ask me, listen, why don't you do a shiur for refuah shlema? Refuah shlema to different people. I say, no problem, I never say no. Even though technically people you know, donate to do such a thing, I don't ask people, you want to donate, donate, you don't want to donate, don't donate, what can I tell you? 
I'm not going to not pray for somebody because you're cheap. But the problem is, the problem is, is when they tell you when the guy is already on his deathbed. So whatever, so we do whatever we can. We pray, we learn, we mention him in the shurim. And I say to the people, listen, my prayer alone, who am I? Saddam is a carabin, we try with this, with that, but Saddam, it's not enough though. Not enough. Other people doing shuva, it's good. It's not enough. You give some donation, good. It's not enough. The sick person, the sick person, are they, are they planning on doing shuva? And they keep Shabbat? Or if they're a woman, are they going to be modest? Are they going to keep mitzvot, tarat mishpacha? And once in a while you hear a fool says, Ah, oh, you know, they don't want to commit. I'm not sure, I'm not sure if they're ready to commit. Oh, she'd rather be dead but immodest instead of alive but modest you rather be a dead Michalil Shabbat rather than a living Shomer Shabbat but that's what it says in the Gemara Reshaim even bepetach Gehenom lo osim tshuva the Reshaim even in the gate of Gehenom not going to do tshuva what does it mean gate of Gehenom Yavid the Hasid Yavid says the Reshaim they're so wicked some people are so used to their sins, so used to taking things that don't belong to them, so used to going against Hashem in different ways, so used to their behavior, that they're going to continue with their behavior even after you prove them. That, listen, you have to change. You have to change. I had a woman one time tell me, listen, my husband beats me. My kids are drug addicts. Uh, this, oh, Hashem Achem, what kind of problem this woman has? Hashem Achem. I tell her, listen, I can't, your text, you have to change your profile picture. Why? Every time you see a profile picture, I see your text. You don't have clothes on. So either send it to me through some other way or change your picture or something. And I can tell you, first mitzvah, I don't need to know your problems. First mitzvah, take on modesty. Take on modesty, keep Shabbat. She goes, listen, I, th- I know you're right. I know I have to do tshuva and I have to be modest, but I'm not ready for that. What do you mean you're not ready? Your kids are drug addicts. Your husband beats you. Uh, the, the, the neighbors hate you. What else do you want? What do you want? What do you want? But call to come from Shemaim. They tell you, please do tshuva. Like, what do you want? What else do you want? Reshaim, even Petach Genom, they're not going to do tshuva. But the Hasid Yavit says a chidush worth a million dollars. He says, until the Petach of Genom, until the gate of Genom, they don't do tshuva. In Genom, everybody does tshuva. Until the gate, no one does tshuva. No, the Reshaim. But you know, you go inside, everybody does chuba. Everybody does chuba. So, Rabotai Yekarim, Hashem Itbarach is telling us, give before you have to give. Give before you get sick. Give before there's problems. Because that shows me that you know where it's coming from. And you don't think that you're the one that made it. But even someone that gives on their deathbed, it's still better than not giving. Many times it's happened with Stakat that Tzilmi Mavit actually went into full effect and Ramash saved somebody's life. Now, there are many times during the year that a person is obligated to give, obviously. But the, right now we have Rosh Chodesh Adar is on uh, Thursday. A couple of days. And a, uh, all the way from Rosh Chodesh Adar until Purim, there's a mitzvah obligation 
it's not a nice thing to do. You're obligated uh, to give something called machatzita shekel, which is what this parasha is. Machatzita shekel, half a shekel, means 9.4 grams of pure silver. Now, obviously, people don't walk around with silver like they used to, so we replace it with actual money. So I did myself the favor, and you could benefit out of it, of actually calculating how much this is. Uh, 9.4 grams of silver is approximately a third of one ounce. A third of one ounce of silver, silver currently being at $16.60 an ounce, that means approximately $5.50 per person per household. So if you have, if it's just you, you're single, give $5.50 or more if you want. Uh, but this, for this specific thing, this mitzvah is five fifty. Anything more is a different mitzvah. But this one, you have to give five fifty. Everybody gives five fifty. No, anything you give more is a different mitzvah. It's takah, it can be ma'asel. But this specific mitzvah has to be precisely $5.50 per person. If you have, let's say, 10 people in your house, then you give $55. But you should give it to different things that are relevant to Torah, zikui rabim, and things of that nature. Uh, this is one mitzvah that you have to do now until Purim. In Purim, when we get to Purim, which is in a few weeks, you're also going to have matanot le'ev yunim. You're going to have uh, to give presents to the poor. This is specifically to poor people. If the poor people are b'nei Torah, it's even better, like avrechim and so on. And what you have to give to poor people, you have to give them two meals, two meals per person. So if it's, let's say, for example, it's you and your wife, you have to give the value of two meals, and your wife has to give the value of two meals. So let's say if a meal, I don't know, let's say a meal is $10, so you have to give $20, and your wife has to give $20. And you should find somebody that learns Torah, and perhaps is poor. Most of the people today in, uh, in Israel that learn Torah happen to be poor for some reason. That's uh, the way Hashem wants it to be. So this is definitely something that uh, you need to do. Uh, and again, like I said, this is a mitzvah, it's an obligation. It's not like a nice thing to do. Um, now, when it comes to tikhuli trumotai, Hashem is telling us, take for me my own tzedakah. What does it mean? It says, really everything that's in your pocket is mine anyway. Everything that you have in the bank is mine. It's not yours. So one guy comes to the Chafetz Chaim. And he says, Kvod Arav, listen. I know Hashem is great and all. But I've made so much money in my life. That even if Hashem destroys my real estate business. Let's say the real estate market collapses. I still got a bunch of money in the stock market. And even if he makes the stock market collapse. I still have an import-export business. And even if he destroys the import-export. I got gold. And even if he destroys gold, I got silver. And even if he destroys silver, I got diamonds. And even if he destroys diamonds, I have horses. And even if he destroys the horses, I got cows. What, is he going to destroy the whole world just to take my money away? The Chafetz Chaim HaKadosh says to him, he goes, you're right. Technically, it's not so difficult for Hashem to destroy the whole world just to take your money. It's not difficult at all. But it's much easier for instead of him destroying the whole world to take your money, to just take you from the money. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Everybody thinks they're smarter than God. 
Everybody thinks they're smarter than God. And the reality is, is that when someone is generous with their money, they're showing Hashem, not necessarily that they have a good character trait. Not just that. It's good. Baruch Hashem, you're generous. It's a good thing to have. People that are not generous are usually very, very despicable people in a lot of other regards. It's a very bad trait because it's the opposite of Hashem. It's the opposite of Hashem. Hashem only gives. He never receives anything. The tefillot is for us. The limut Torah is for us. The tzedakah is for us. Everything is for us. He doesn't get anything from us. Nothing. So he only gives. So when we are stingy, when we're cheap, when we don't want to give, we're the opposite of Hashem. It's a very, very bad character trait to have. And usually people that are stingy have bad marriages. Usually they have kids that can't stand them. Usually they have a lot of partners that want to do bad things to them. People that are stingy have a lot of enemies. Why? It's a very despisable character trait. But one of the one of the things is that it also gets the person to have Hashem despise them also. Why? I give you a hundred thousand and you can't give my children ten thousand? Oh no, no, after I make a million, Hashem, after I make a million. Who says you're gonna make a million? What you're making a deal with me? I already gave you a hundred now. You're waiting until I give you more even? You wait, I gave you a hundred now, but you're waiting for me to give you even more before you give. Who said you're going to give more later? If it's hard for you to give ten now, what makes you think it's going to be easy to give a hundred? Oh, I have a million. It's much easier. No, it's much harder. It's much, much harder to give a hundred thousand than it is to give ten dollars. Than it is to give ten thousand. People think, no, if you have more, it's easy to give more. Absolutely not. I'm telling you from experience, absolutely not. It's very easy to give $500 or $5,000 or even $50,000. Writing a check for half a million? Psh, doesn't matter how much money you have. Very difficult. So that mentality is only the Yetzirah telling you, no, no, wait till more, wait till more, wait till more. Hashem says, oh, you wait till more? Fine, you'll never have more. And not only that, I'm taking the other 90% back too. We learn this from the Gemara. Nagbimon ben Gurion, who gave an enormous amount of money in tzedakah, enormous amount of money, but he lost everything he had to the point where his daughter had to look for different seeds inside the waist of horses and donkeys. When Rabbi Yochanan saw, he said, "What happened? Who are you? How could such a thing be? Your, your father was a big bad tzedakah." She said, "Yes, he gave a lot of tzedakah, but not enough. Not enough." When we give, when we show the positive character trait of giving, it's not just showing us, showing Hashem that we are decent human beings, that we have a good midah, but also shows Hashem that we understand that it's not from us. We didn't make the money. We didn't do anything. So now you're going to say, wait a minute, boy, I went to work. I invested in the stock. I had the idea. I uh, did this. I did this. You did nothing. Nothing. The less credit you take for yourself, the closer you are to actual reality. Why? Even the idea, who put the idea in your head? Even the money that you invested, who gave you the money in the first place? Oh, it was my father. Oh, it was my cousin. Oh, I won the lotto. Yeah, but who made all of that happen? Who made all of that happen? So, when someone is generous... 
it's a good midah to have, but also protects them from a lot of danger. A lot of danger. So, the sages say that when someone is ungrateful, it's an, uh, it's an unbearable midah. But what's a sign? What's the sign of somebody being in, in a danger zone? Chazal says when someone is ungrateful to one of his friends. Not just uh, Hashem. If someone is ungrateful to a friend, if someone is ungrateful to his wife or to their husband, someone that's close to them, a human being. The Gemara says someone that's ungrateful to a regular person, eventually they'll be ungrateful to Hashem. What does one thing have to do with the other? I'm ungrateful to him because uh, I don't like him. I'm ungrateful to her because I don't like her. What's the, what's the difference? Why? I like Hashem. I love Hashem. He gave me all this money. No, my friend. If you are ungrateful to your friend, you're eventually going to be ungrateful to the makom, to the omnipresent, to Hashem Itbarach. Why? Because ungratefulness is a character trait. A character trait is not a cold. It doesn't go away. It's not a headache. It's a character trait, meaning you're getting yourself used to being ungrateful. And eventually it's going to elevate to being ungrateful to the one who gave you everything. So these are just a few things that are just going to, these different stakot that Hashem tells us throughout the year to give, it's a similar concept to how the Rambam explains it, is that if somebody is very stingy, the, the way that they can overcome their stinginess is by giving a little bit of money to a lot of different places. So let's say, for example, they only have, let's say they're Maaseh, they have $1,000 they make. They made $1,000, they have to give $100. If they're stingy, and it's hard for them to give $100. It's hard. Amash, the guy is already thinking about what he's going to do with $100. What does he need the $100 for? Yes, somebody else is going to give him. Why does he need my $100? Let him go to work. Why do I have to give him the $100? He's eating himself up about the $100. He forgot that he made $1,000. He's only thinking about his $100. I don't want to give him the $100. Oh, yeah, he's eating himself up, my mouth, like he's dying inside. Dying inside, I gave him $100. So you know what? Okay, I gave him $100. Hashem should give me 10000 back. Say I'm in. You know, like everybody say, wait, wait, $100. Some people have a hard time. He's skin. So the Rambam says, take the $100. Don't give it to one person. Give it to 10 people. $10, $10, $10, $10, 10 times. Or even worse, if you really have a problem, give it to 100 people. Find a hundred almost people, give them, give me like the Lubavitcher Rebbe. On Sundays, you give a dollar to each person. Da, 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 one, 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 a hundred. Why? He says you're going to get used to being a gracious person, being a generous person. Why? You give it to a lot of people. It makes Neshama feel good. And eventually, you won't be cheap. Eventually, you won't be cheap. These are just a few different things that Hashem Barach tells us that it's the specific times that you should give tzedakah, really on a weekly basis, every time you make money, if you make money every week, or if you make money every two weeks, whatever your, or every month, whatever it is, you should be giving the ma'asel, that's an obligation. But there are also other mitzvot where he's reminding you of the same thing. He's reminding you of, of, of the importance of giving. Now, The other thing that Hashem expects us to give Him is our full undivided attention, our full undivided heart, 
He doesn't expect our hearts to be anywhere else. That's why the first three commandments out of the Ten Commandments talk about how he's the only God. You can't have any other gods. You can't use his name in vain. And if you look at the Gemara in Masechet Megillah, the Gemara asks, who's a Yehudi? Who's a Jew? Who's a Jew? Why was Mordechai called Mordechai a Yehudi? Why was Mordechai called a Mordechai Yehudi? Why? Because his mom was Jewish? Why is Mordechai a Yehudi? Because if that's the case, then why was Batya, the daughter of Paran, also called Yehudiya? Her father wasn't Jewish. Her mother wasn't Jewish. Why was Kalev? Kalev also called Yehudi. Both of his parents. So the key here is there's something here. What's, 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 the, what's the common denominator here? The Yehudi came from anyone that fights idolatry. Anyone that fights idolatry, you have the right to be a Jew. You're a Jew. Obviously, there's different halachot of being a Jew, but nonetheless, they got the, the coined name Jew. Like being a fighter for Yehuda. Yehuda is where we get the, uh, the name Yehudi. And they fought against idolatry. Mordechai, we're going to learn in uh, Megillat Estel, that Mordechai was fighting the idolatry of Haman. Haman had a statue on his neck all the time. So, Hashem despises idolatry. He despises things that, things that take away our attention from Him. And this is why there are specific laws in the Torah where you are forbidden to be to give your heart to anything else but Hashem. When it says, Hashem you must, you're obligated to love Hashem with all your heart, with your life, with your money, and so on. It's not like just a, a few nice words to say in the morning and you forgot about it for the rest of the day. Meaning Hashem is expecting our full undivided attention. Meaning that anything that takes your attention away from Hashem to such an extent that this is where your mind is occupied on all the time is considered potentially to be idolatry. So for example, the whole issue of how people spend their lives chasing money. When people chase money, either because they're day trading all day or because they're investing in businesses or because they're uh, buying and selling cars or because they're doing whatever, they, above and beyond the norm, above and beyond the normal for survival. Of course, people need to work, they need to make a living. But if your life is just comprised of work and chasing money, you have a serious problem. Why? Hashem says, you're so focused on money, when do you have time for me? This is also the issue with the whole week situation that the, with the uh, Chabadniks and uh, a lot of the other people that are so infatuated with the wigs. I mean, you see it. It's really, it's, you forget about the fact that the wigs come from India and when it's real hair and it's, uh, it has idolatry involved in it and all of that stuff. The fact that they're literally willing to like die for these wigs, but they're not willing to die for Hashem for any other reason. For the wig, they'll die for. For the wig, they'll fight for. For the rig, they'll, they'll, they'll curse out people in public and in this and that. But for Hashem, for other things, they're not willing to do it. That already shows us something's wrong with it. I mean, when a rabbi has a whole keilah full of mechalei Shabbat, he doesn't say a word. But yet, some other strange rabbi 
says you're not allowed to wear a wig because it comes from idolatry and he's awake at three o'clock in the morning hounding me to change my mind to change my opinion to do something else like why don't you use the same energy on your own keilah to keep shabbat why don't you use the same energy to teach your keilah the truth about hashem if you have the energy at three o'clock in the morning to yell at me and you don't even know me why don't you use the same energy to to do something else this shows that the idolatry is not just something that's foreign, it's in a different place. It's also here. It's also, it, it affects our hearts. It affects our hearts. One of the things that Hashem despises also is in the Gemarayim Masechet Sanhedrin, we talked about this uh, a little more extensively on Sunday, is the issue of gambling. Unfortunately, today, the world is developed in such a way where you can't tell the difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and you know the rest of the world because now gambling is legal in many parts of the United States it's game it's it's legal in many parts of the world and in fact it's celebrated they have shows on television about it people that win in gambling are admired now the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin says that there are certain people that are psulim le'edut, that are not valid to be used as someone that's a witness in a Jewish ceremony. So, for example, if you want someone to be a witness in your wedding, chupan kiddushin, you cannot use this person. If you want somebody to be a witness in a court hearing, let's say somebody stole and this guy saw it. This guy saw, the other guy stole. Not allowed to use him. And there's a few reasons. What are these reasons? One of them, Rabotai, is Mechalel Shabbat. Someone's a Mechalel Shabbat is not allowed to be witness in a Jewish ceremony. Why? He's considered 100% an idol worshiper. It's Mechalel Shabbat. What's the next one the Gemara says? Mesachek Bekubiyah. What's Mesachek Bekubiyah? A gambler. Somebody that gambles. Somebody that gambles for a living. Not somebody that gambles occasionally. He played that on a lotto, $2 with a, uh, you know, once a year or something like that. Someone that gambles on a regular basis. He's made it his life. This person is Pasul Fe'edut. So we went more extensively of why it's not allowed to gamble on Sunday. I'm not going to repeat the same thing. It's not necessarily relevant. But to just explain to you this thing that's happening right now in some of these Bateknesset, or at least they call themselves Bateknesset, these shuls, is really despicable. Where they're having, they're trying to get people to come to the Bet Knesset, and they're trying to, instead of bring the Bet Knesset to people in a way, like Torah, which is to bring the people up to the Torah, like the mountain, Mount Sinai, we, brought, we went up to get to the Torah. Instead, what we're doing, we're bringing the mountain down. We're bringing the Torah down to people, and we're trying to convince them to come to the Bet Knesset. How? By making the Bet Knesset look like their world. Oh, you like to uh, you, you like to hear motivational speakers? Okay, we'll bring the motivational speakers to you. Even if the motivational speaker is a Michalel Shabbat, even if he's an atheist, even if he's a Christian missionary, even if he's a uh, if he's, you like, no problem, we'll bring him. Oh, you like to gamble? Okay, we'll have a gambling tournament in the Beknesset. Oh, you like to play football? Okay, we'll bring a football tournament to the Beknesset. Oh, you like to watch uh, football, Super Bowl? Okay, we'll have a Super Bowl party in a bit Knesset. 
רבותיי יקרים, הבית כנסת is not for your Super Bowl parties, it's not for your gambling parties, it's not for all of these parties, not for that. הבית כנסת is a mini בית המקדש. You're not supposed to have gambling tournaments and football tournaments and genom tournaments of who's going to get there first and who's going to get there last, who's going to be there longer and who's going to be there shorter. You don't have to do that. That's not what a Beit Knesset is for. This is a Chilul Hashem, She'en Kamohu. Now why is this gambling thing really mamash firing me up? Why? In my opinion, and I spoke to my Rav about it today and he agreed. In my opinion, having these gambling tournaments in Batiknesit, in my opinion, is worse than having the missionary. You know, last year, missionary, they wanted to bring the missionary to Boca Raton to speak to Jewish people. I mean, I don't have to go over it again. I mean, you don't need to be a genius to realize this is pure stupidity. Now, we fought tooth and nail for two months almost. I literally didn't see my wife, my kids, my nothing. My kid was born. I barely even saw it. Mamash, unbelievable. We're fighting tooth and nail to get this event to stop. Baruch Hashem, it stopped. It got canceled by the idol worshiper. Well, at least it was canceled. But I think the gambling that's happening in, in, in Batik Neset, which is not one or two or three or four, Many of them are having these foolish tournaments for poker and backgammon and sheshbesh and all these stupid games that they're having in Bateknesset. I think it's worse. Why do I think it's worse? Because I know that right now many of you maybe agree with me and some of you think I'm out of my mind. Who knows? But in reality, the thousands of people that are going to watch this shiur, they're going to say, ah, this guy again. What, everything is bad? Everything is bad. We're not allowed to do anything? So what, everybody's going to go to Gainom except you? Why is this so bad? No one thinks there's anything wrong with it. Everybody thinks, what? We're just playing a little card. What's the big deal? Why are you so... Come on, lighten up a little bit. Have some fun. Didn't you used to play? Yeah, before I knew I wasn't allowed. Torah says you're not allowed. Especially... Why is this worse, though, than the missionary? Though? Why is it worse than the missionary? Because the missionary... You don't have to be a genius to know there's something wrong with it. You don't have to be a genius. Anyone that has their brain screwed on the right way, even if they're not Jewish, they know they're bringing a Christian, Catholic missionary into a Jewish organization. Something bad's going to happen. Nothing's going to get them out of it. At least not for the Jews. If you bring Hitler to your bar mitzvah, nothing good is going to come out of it. Nothing. The problem is, Rabotai, is if you bring gambling to your shul, it's even worse. And the reason why is because with the missionary, many people are going to see there's something wrong with it. And they're going to say, you know what, it's a missionary, I'm not going. Maybe I'm not going to speak out like this guy. Maybe I'm not going to fight like this guy. It's not for me to fight. I got my own life, my own fights to deal with. But I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to attend. Some people are not going to attend because they know it's wrong. Some people are not going to go because it's just not for them. They're not interested. They're very okay with their beliefs. And some are stupid enough to say, oh, let's see what he says. But a very small minority are foolish enough to go check it out. A very small minority are going to go inside the cage with the lion. 
to see. Maybe, maybe he's not going to bite me. It's a small minority. But with gambling, Rabotai, this is much worse. Why? 99% of people see nothing wrong with it. Because most of them didn't learn the halacha. Now, they go to casinos on their own. Oh, I have a vacation this week. I'm going to go to a casino. I have a vacation next week. You want to come with me? They'll even invite the rabbis sometimes. They have no idea there's something wrong with it because no one speaks against it. No one speaks against the casinos. No one is speaking about how it's not allowed on an extended basis. So now, even if you had somewhat of a doubt, you saw one of my five or six clips that I made about gambling, and you had like a suffix, you weren't sure, am I allowed to gamble, not allowed to gamble, am I allowed to gamble, not allowed to gamble. He says it, but maybe I'm still allowed to, maybe he's too stringent. You had like a 50-50 doubt. Now, you have now a proof against it. Why? They're having tournaments of gambling inside the Beknesset. He's saying, if they're having a tournament of gambling inside the Beknesset, of course it's mutal. Of course it's, uh, it's allowed. It's in a Beknesset. Which means, not only is it allowed to gamble in the Beknesset, it's a mitzvah to go to the casino too. Mitzvah. That's the rationale of the Yetzirah, the Satan, the Malach HaMavit. And these fools are making these events inside, inside the Bet Knesset. Why? No, maybe more people are going to show up. It's better off they never come. It's better off they never come to a shul or ever even hear about a shul. It's better off the shul never existed than having such a Chilul Hashem happen to mamash pervert the Torah in such a way to make people think it's not only it's okay, it's a mitzvah. Why? Some of the proceeds are going to go for tzedakah. No one needs your tzedakah. No one needs your tzedakah. No one needs your Chilul Hashem. This is worse. Why is it worse? Because now you're mamash putting hechsher, you're putting the kosher sign on a pig. It's a pig. Everybody knows it's a pig. Even the guy that was gambling knew it was a pig, but he, he justified it in his own way. He never told everybody else to come. He never had the audacity to invite the rabbi. He knew that gambling is not really allowed, but maybe, maybe, maybe yes, maybe not. Now that he sees there's a gambling tournament inside the casino, inside the, uh, the Beknesset, or casino, same thing now, now it's like, oh, you know what? For the Rav, let's do a big, big mitzvah. The next Hanukkah party, or even better yet, let's make it now. The next porn party, let's have it in Las Vegas. You're, tell, you're telling me this is not going to be an idea at least throughout the next couple of weeks? At least 100 people are not going to have this idea? Why? They're going to say, look, this Vicness is having a poker tournament. This one has a Shesh Best tournament. This one has a uh, Genom tournament. This one has a uh, Kafakela tournament. All the tournaments, tournaments. Let's go. No. This is how Chilul Hashem happens. And that's why the Gemara in Masechet Sotah, page 49, says that at the end of days, before the Mashiach arrives, our own leaders are going to steer us in the wrong direction. The ones that are supposed to know will give us the wrong instructions. They know the right way, but they still choose the other way. Why? They figure, listen, if I'm going to Gainom, I'm taking you with me. Taking you with me.
now that we finished the introduction, we'll go back to our Mishnah. עשרה דברים נבראו בערב שבת בין השמשות ואלו הן פי הארץ, פי הבאר, פי האתון והקשת והמן והמטה והשמיר, הכתב והמכתב והלוחות ויש אומרים אף המזיקין וקבורתו של משה ואלו, ואלו של אברהם אבינו ויש אומרים אף צבת בצבת עשויה. At twilight, meaning on Friday night, before Shabbat officially came in. And they are the mouth of the earth, which we went over. That's the mouth of the earth in a desert that swallowed Korach ve'adato. Korach and his followers, 250 big rabbis that followed his foolishness. The mouth of the well, this is the well of Miriam HaTzadikah, the prophet, teaching us that the, sh- the shefa that comes to the world, all the good that comes to the world is in the merit of the tzaddikim. The mouth of Bilam's donkey, Bilam's donkey that spoke and rebuked Bilam, we learned many things from it. One was that, Hashem showed Bilam, that if I could change nature and make the donkey speak, of course I could make anything else happen. And you cursing Am Yisrael is not going to work. Even though I gave you a certain ability, I could restrict that ability. But even more so, what we learn relevant to us, when Hashem says, Hashem et aton, He's saying it doesn't really matter where the truth comes from. It doesn't really matter where the truth comes from. If the truth came from the aton, from the donkey, if it comes from a donkey and it's true, good. If it comes from a rabbi, good. If it comes from a goy, good. If it comes from a three-year-old, good. It doesn't make a difference where it comes from. As long as it's true. That's what matters. So when the Aton, when the Aton rebuked Bilam, it didn't change the fact that it was true. When someone that's a big rabbi, huge, Learned 50 years. But he made a wrong move. He did a wrong thing. And he's telling you, listen, you, uh, you're allowed to have a, a poker tournament for money in my Beknesset. He's making a mistake. It doesn't make a difference that he learned Torah for 50 years. It makes no difference. It's wrong. If a three-year-old comes to that same Beknesset and says you're not allowed to have missionaries, you're not allowed to have poker tournaments, you're not allowed to do those things. Three-year-old or not even a three-year-old, a donkey. A donkey comes in, comes and says, listen, guys, not allowed to have poker tournaments in Batiknesset or missionaries or anything like that. Not allowed. Does it make a difference? That a donkey said it? No. So for all this, it's, oh, yeah, he's saying it. He doesn't know. Is it true or not? So the Aton taught us that the truth is more important than the source of the truth. The next thing is, Akeshet, Akeshet meaning the rainbow. Rainbow is reminding us of the deal that Hashem made, the covenant that Hashem made with Noah, where he says, I don't want to destroy the world, I'm not going to destroy the world again with a flood. And the sign, the covenant, the reminder of this deal is going to be the Keshet, is going to be the rainbow. 
but also it should it should remind you that every time there's a keshet in Shemaim, every time there's a rainbow in the sky, in reality Hashem is not happy with us. He's reminding us, oh, if it wasn't for the deal that I made with Noah, I'd destroy the world right now. So one thing that we should do is refrain from telling people, hey, look at this uh, rainbow, look at this rainbow. Not allowed to do such a thing. Why? In essence, it's like saying, look, look, God is angry and he really wants to destroy the world, but he can't because he made a deal. It's taunting Hashem. That's what the Torah says. Not allowed to do such a thing. The next thing is Haman. Haman, meaning the manna bread that we got from Shemaim. The manna bread that we got from Shemaim. And this is teaching us about Emunah and Bittachon. I heard a chidu, I uh, learned a chidush today. It has to do with Purim. It's good to say briefly now. Rabbi Yosefi says that anytime you're giving a lecture, he's been lecturing for over 50 years. Big Mezakeh Rabin in Israel. And uh, he says, anytime I give a lecture, if I have a story completely unrelated to the lecture, but for some reason, Hashem put it in my brain during a lecture, I have to say it. Why? Hashem put it there for a reason. Somebody has to hear this story. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with anything. doesn't make a difference. Hashem put it there because it has to do with something. So, I heard this today, and now you're going to hear it, if I find it. So, in a um, parashat man, that we, uh, anyone that wants to, this uh, is gula for for Parnasat Tova, people always want to find different ways to make money and make more money. One of them is that you read Parashat Haman every day. Not just a specific time during the year. Like some people thought it was like, uh, I don't know, for like a couple of days last month. You're supposed to do it. In reality, you're supposed to do it every day. They just said it. You should do it for those specific days. There's an extra merit, and during that time, there's an extra merit to do it every day. Number one, because it's Limut Torah. And number two, because Limut Torah. And it has to do with that specific issue. But that's the Zgula, is to make, as far as the Panasah, is to read Parashat Aman. Let me see where it is. So it says that the uh, the man is going to give you satiate you this viecha. It's going to make you full, or 
it's going to torture you. So here the Chachamim say this is a prophecy of the same Haman is the Haman of the Purim. It's spelled the same way. The manna bread from Shemaim, the manna bread from Shemaim is spelled the same way. Hey, Mem Nun is also the name for Haman Arasha from Purim. Hitler from 2,500 years ago. The same manna that's going to, that can satiate you, could torture you also. Same one. What's the connection? The connection is the whole issue with Haman Arasha, the whole reason of why Haman Arasha got furious enough to Hamash try to destroy all of Am Yisrael was all because of a horrible midah that he had. What was the midah that he had that was horrible? Greed. Greed. It doesn't matter what he, Hashem gave him, he wanted more. To such an extent that the Midrash says, and the Gemara Masechet Megillah says, aside from Korach, no one in the history of mankind was ever richer than Haman Arasha. He was the second richest man of all time. He was richer than Achashverosh. When he came to Achashverosh and he says, listen, there's a strange nation, they're not following this, they're not following that, they're all over the place, and so on and so forth. Listen, give me the authority to destroy them, and uh, just in case, here's a down payment. What did he give him? 10,000 kikare kesef. What's 10,000 kikare kesef? Same math that I used for the machatita shekel. If you do the math of how much that is, it's $334 million. He gave Achashverosh $334 million to give him the okay to destroy Am Yisrael. That's a nice bonus. Why? Why did, why did Haman, why did Haman care so much that he, so much? I mean, listen, a lot of people hate us. People have always hated Am Yisrael. Esav sonet Yaakov, it's Allah Moshe Nisinai. It's Allah, Esav sonet Yaakov. But not everybody's willing to put their money on it. Not everybody's willing. Many people dislike Am Yisrael, but not everybody's willing to put, mortgage their house to start a campaign against Am Yisrael. This guy is willing to put $335 million on the line. Why? At the end of Megillat Esther Karim, he says to his wife, I have everything. I have kavod, I have this, I have this, I have this, I have this. I have everything I have. He has billions and billions of dollars. Trillions and trillions of dollars. He has no end of the money that he has. Forest full of money. I only have one thing missing. Mordechai Yehudi doesn't want to bow to me. So why does not want to bow to you? But that makes everything I do have worthless. Why, it's not enough that you have $10 trillion? It's not enough that you have the, you're the bigger position than anyone else in the world except the king, and even he is uh, kissing up to you? It's not enough that you have this. It's not enough. No, I want one more. If I don't have that one more, everything else is worthless. This is someone that Mamash... It's a horrible nature of a person, but this is a person that's no different than many people today that have confused their greed 
and made it into ambition. They think that they're ambitious. They call themselves ambitious. They wake up extra early in the morning. They go, they go to sleep extra late. Why? They're chasing money. They think it's ambition. In reality, it has nothing to do with ambition. It has to do with greed. Ambition is good. Ambition is healthy. Ambition is necessary. But if your whole life is money, it has nothing to do with ambition. Zero to do with ambition. It just means you're greedy. That means that if you made 100000 last year and you're still working full-time, pretty much 24 hours a day, it has nothing to do with ambition. You're just greedy. Now you made a million. You're still going to work. Even if you made $10 million, you're still going to work nonstop. You made $100 million, you're still going to work nonstop. What? It has nothing to do with ambition. This is why the billionaires in the Forbes 500, the ones that are on the list and the ones that are not on the list, still go to work every day. Still make deals. They're 90 years old. They're still making billion-dollar deals. For what? Your, your, you, your kids, your kids' kids, your kids' pets, your kids' pets' pets, your pets' grandkids are not going to be able to spend the money you have today. What do you need more money for? It has nothing to do with ambition. Nothing. It's only greed. That's why the Gemara says you give him 100, he wants 200. You give him 200, he wants 400. You give him 400, he wants 800. And no human being has ever died with half of what he wanted. Because when it's all based on greed, it's never going to be enough. Whatever you have is always going to be meaningless. It's always going to be meaningless. Say, no, no, no. Once I get to a million, I'm going to relax at that point. Then I, I'm going to come to the, to the shoe. Once I have a million dollars, I'm going to come to the shoe. How many shoes do you have? Three? Okay, I'll come to five shoes. I'll come to your house too, Vodanov. I'll come to your house. I'll come, I'll see your house, maybe I'll listen to you. I once have a million dollars. What about now? No, now I only have a half a million. No, I can't. Can't, I have to work. You know, why? It's not enough. You, you, you're starving on the street? It's free this year. It doesn't cost you half a million dollars. It's free. You don't have to pay. Baruch Hashem, it's free. This is the Satan the Malach HaMavet, Yetzirah altogether in the person's brain, convincing him he needs money. Not needs it like he needs it to just buy some food and some groceries and survive. He needs it like he needs air. And a person like that, unfortunately, he's his own biggest enemy. No matter how much he has, it's never going to be enough. And that's why even the mana, the mana that could taste like anything you want, the mana that's amazing, that the whole thing goes into the blood system. You don't even have to go to the bathroom. Amisa still complained about it. Why? It's perfect food. You ever want something else? What's something else? Make it into something else. I want steak. It can taste like steak. I want ice cream too. Make it taste like ice cream. The Gemara says that even in the middle of them eating it, they decided on a different taste. It tastes like that now. So what do you want something else? What? It's never enough. It's never enough, Rabotai. Haman, same thing. Purim, the whole holiday. I'm writing a Boch Hashem, a big article about it. I'll give you a few sources in Chidushim about the whole issue of greed. It's mamash. It's, it's one of the diseases. It's one of the diseases of this, of this generation. And the whole reason of a near holocaust is greed. Greed of Achashverosh. Greed of Haman Arasha. Greed of all of the people that are involved in the story on the bad side. All has to do with greed. People think, oh, no, they're anti-Semitic. No, that's nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Yeah, of course, they use anti-Semitism as that's the vehicle. But it was all about greed. Why? More. How much do you want? More. How much more? More than what I have now. And once you have it, I want more again. 
This is a sick, this is a cancer. It's a spiritual cancer. A person that's greedy has spiritual cancer and maybe in some people, there's never going to be a cure for them. Why? The cure is very difficult. It's not chemo. The cure for the spiritual cancer of greed is extreme. How extreme? In Megillat Esther, what was the cure? What was the cure for Am Yisrael? Fast for three days, wear sacks. Yeah, but you're a millionaire. I'm wearing a sack. Yeah, you're a billionaire. Wearing a sack. Extreme. The cure for greed has to be extreme. You have to give a lot, and you have to get yourself to such a point you don't enjoy this world. It's the only cure to greed. Otherwise, you're always going to have a little bit in you. You It's not necessarily... A uh, uh, something you do in one day, but the point is that some people literally have to do it because they're so greedy they can't see straight. Haman couldn't see straight. Yeah. Someone that's greedy and not a kfui tova? It's a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. Contradiction it has to be a kfui tova. Someone that's greedy must be a kfui tova. He can't see straight. His nature is wrong. Everything is wrong. Give staka for he's not giving staka. He's he's not it's not it's not canceling out his staka. The fact that he's greedy is not canceling out his staka. It's still a mitzvah that he gives staka. The problem is with greedy people is that they're not necessarily giving staka for staka's sake. They're giving staka in order to make more money. So for example, the guy that's greedy is usually going to be the guy that's going to give a million dollars and is going to ask you to publicize to the whole world that he gave a million dollars. Why? Because after everybody knows that he gave a million dollars, he's going to make 10 million from it. Because they're not going to do business with him. Oh, look, he's so generous. Let's do business with him. So if they're not giving staka for the right sake, meaning, something that's impure, something that comes out of something impure is always impure. You cannot have kosher milk come out of a pig. Just can't be. So, greed is a very, very difficult thing to fight, but it's possible. What's the cure? Musal. So, that was the chidush on the mana bread. The mana bread is either going to starve you or it's going to satiate you. You have to decide. Just like Torah. Torah is either going to be the potion for life or potion for death, like the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says. So now the next thing, the next thing is Amate. Amate is talking about the staff of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now I've talked about the staff of Moshe Rabbeinu a few times in the past, but still it has to do with this, uh, with this Mishnah. We'll repeat some of the things. We'll give you some other new things about it. In the Midrash and Ma'am Loez, it gives details of this mate. In uh, in Parashat Shmot, in Me'am Loez, it talks about this mate. talks about the staff that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu had, and it weighed 40 se'ah. What's 40 se'ah? 40 se'ah is 240 okas. What's 240 okas? 672 pounds. 672 pounds. That was the mate. 
That was the staff of Moshe Rabbeinu. So now, you're asking yourself, how could Moshe Rabbeinu pick up such a heavy staff? Well, first of all, you should know that Moshe Rabbeinu was a very big guy. He wasn't a little puny like us, just growing this way. But uh, it wasn't like that. He was also very tall. He was very big. He was very strong. But aside from that, it had nothing to do with strength. It was a spiritual thing because this mate, like I said, like this Mishnah says, is one of the ten things that Hashem created before He created everything else. Meaning before the, the uh, before Shabbat came in. So now this mate had several things on it. First of all, it was made from a, uh, a certain uh, um, material called snaprinon. Snaprinon, some say it's sapphire. Some say it's sapphire. Or what I called it actually one time was ruby. But it's actually not. Because there is an opinion, because they did the math. They actually did the math. The Mefashim did the math. And it's unbelievable. I'm not going to go through the whole math for you. Because it's very, very extensive, and only if you're if you're a math person, I could show you this equation. It has to do with the volume and the size of it, and uh, how long it is, and uh, physically, like based on physics, and how much the gravity of sapphire is for. Which means, therefore, if the staff weighs six hundred seventy-two pounds, because the forty sal we know for sure. So if it's sapphire, then it would have had the volume of 76,000 cubic centimeters. In so many words, it would have been too big. It's, it's, it's not something that's a, uh, it wouldn't make sense for it to be sapphire. It would, make, it would be too thick, it would be too big. It wouldn't be a staff, it would be a tree trunk. It wouldn't make sense. So what are they saying it is? They're saying it actually make, makes more sense that this uh, uh, Sanfirinon, the Sanfirinon is actually a heavy metal similar to platinum. Because platinum has a gravity of 21.5. And with a gravity of 21.5, this 672 pound staff, this 40 Sa'ah, would still be, would still have a, uh, a staff that has a diameter of three inches, which is decent. It's, it's something you can hold on to. It's not, you don't have to go like this with the, uh, with the big staff. So it makes more sense. And you see how the Chachamim, they're, they're not, uh, they're looking at everything. They're not just, oh yeah, it's sapphire, it's sapphire, it's diamond, it's diamond. No, they don't just throw things out. They have to verify. And they knew all the calculations. No, it doesn't make sense. Even though there is an opinion that it's sapphire, Maybe it just looked like sapphire. Maybe it just this. Maybe it was just wrong. Why? It doesn't make sense. It would be too thick. If it was sapphire, why? Because the, they knew the gravity. Gravity? No, no. The gravity would pull it. It would be too thick. Da, da, da. It doesn't make sense. So what makes more sense is that it was some type of metal, and one metal that's a possibility that they're saying is that it would be platinum. Platinum. Very interesting midrash. Very interesting midrash. This is in the back of the Naam Loez, the commentary on the commentary. So on this staff, it had a few things. First of all, it had Hashem's name on it, engraved on it. 
Hashem's name was engraved on it. And also, meaning the first letter of each one of the ten plagues. Dam, Tzfardea, Kinim, Arov, Dever, Shechin, Barad, Arbe, Choshech, Vimakat, Bechorot. All ten plagues that uh, Hashem put on Egypt. The first letter of each one of the plagues, so for example, for Dam, it was Dalit. For Tzfardea, it was Tzadik. For Kinim, it was the Chaf, and so on and so forth. So the Mepharshim says that every time, for example, there was like a, a play coming, like that, would maybe would light up, like the, like the Choshen of the Kohen Gadol. Something like that. Very, uh, very interesting, this, uh, this stuff. You have one? I want one of these. Platinum is cheap. Two hours we're talking to I still think about money. God bless. Ah, <laughs> It's my fault. I'm not, I'm not a good teacher. What can I do? What can I do? Um, so now this uh, this uh, staff, how did it get to Moshe Rabbeinu? So the Midrash says something very interesting. It says, first of all, this staff, this staff had a very nice journey. Who's the first person that had it? Adam Rishon. Adam Rishon had a staff. After that, he gave it to Enoch. To Enoch. After that, he gave it to Shem. Shem was the son of Noah. After Shem, Shem gave it to Avram Avinu. Avram gave it to Yitzchak. Yitzchak gave it to Yaakov. Yaakov chose uh, uh, Yosef, his son. Out of all of the, the, the 12 sons, he chose Yosef to give him the, uh, the staff. And then after Yosef died, Paro stole the staff. Paro took it. Why? He was there, so he took it. And then, Paro obviously didn't know what to do with it. Right, they didn't lift it. There's a bunch of people that lifted it. The point is that he had it. But then, after Itro, Bilam, and Eyov, and Job, all three of them were the consultants for Paro. And Paro asked them, in Sefer Shmot, it says, and a new Paro came that forgot who Yosef was. And some of them in Farshim says, he didn't forget, he just chose to forget. He didn't forget. He chose to forget. He forgot that uh, Yosef is the one that put him on the map, that made him all this money or anything like that. He forgot about that. It's like some people, you, uh, you help them with something, you do them a favor, you get them, you give them a shiduch, or you get them a tzedakah, or you help them with something, whatever, and then all of a sudden, the one time you need help from them, they forgot who you are. Oh, wait, I know you. Sure. How'd you get my number? I'm the guy that uh, introduced you to your wife. Don't you remember? No, no, no I forgot. Oh, you? You really? No, I don't think you did it. I think my rabbi did it. They forget. They forget who you are. Sometimes people do that. Miskinim. What can they do? So, Paro forgot who Yosef was, even though he made him all this money. And he said, listen, 
let's take this, uh, let's take whatever, whatever was in his room, whatever was in his chamber, whatever is there, let's take it. One of the things was the staff. Now once he came to Yitro, to Bil'am, and to Job, and he told him, listen, this Am Yisrael, they're getting too big. They're having uh, every birth is six kids. So average family has 60 kids, 10 births, 60 kids, like an army. Before you know it, they're going to join one of our enemies, they're going to destroy us. So we have to, uh, we have to fool them. Let's, let's fool them. Let's fool them somehow. Bilam said, I think it's a good idea. Let's destroy them. What was his punishment? Hashem killed him later on. After Parashat Balak, in Parashat Pinchas, he kills him. Pinchas himself kills Bilam. In an unusual mita meshuna. Job didn't say anything. Job didn't say anything. Why? He's not going to listen to me anyway. What happened to him? Even though it was Tzadik, he got punished. He got that whole year of, uh, of Gainom that he lived in this world. Itro said, no, why? Why are you going to go against Am Yisrael? They're the ones that put you on the map. They're the ones that made you millionaires. They're the ones that built your banking system. They're the ones that built your commerce system. They're the ones that built this, built that. How can you do it? They didn't like what they heard. He had to run away. He said, all right, if I'm already running away, let me take the staff. And he stole the staff. He stole the staff that Hashem created during Ben Hashemashot. And he said, ah, what am I going to do? Somebody's going to steal the staff from me. So he stuck it into the ground. And he said, whoever has... The merit is going to be able to, whoever can take this huge staff out of the ground can marry my daughter. And for years, all the Birionim, all of the heroes, all the people that were very strong, tried to take it out of the ground. But like I said, 672 pounds, big. And also it had something to do with spirituality. Hashem did not want to give this staff to anybody. So a lot of the big giants tried to take it out and they couldn't take it out. One day, Moshe Rabbeinu, still before he became Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was still Moshe, when he was running, ran away from Egypt, and then he was a king at Kush, according to the Midrash, as king of Kush for 40 years, and then he left, and he went to Midian, and he took the, I remember I told you guys a story, where after he met Itro, he told Itro what his story was, and Itro, even though he was the Pope over there, and he was uh, worshipping all types of idols, it wasn't because he was a Rasha. It was because he was constantly looking for Hashem. And he thought that Hashem had some type of form, some type of body. So he tried one statue, it didn't work. He went to another religion. Didn't work, went to another religion. And his whole life he kept looking for the truth. And that's why eventually when he gets to Parashat Yitro, it says, Vaishma Yitro. What does it mean, Vaishma Yitro? And Yitro heard. He heard, ah, that's where God is. I've been looking for him my whole life. He left all of the idol worship, all the money, all the gold, all the fame, all the fortune. I've been looking for Hashem my whole life. It's all worthless without Hashem. And he went to Mount Sinai to join Moshe Rabbeinu and the rest. And that's why Yitro is the righteous convert. Yitro that has a parasha of the Ten Commandments after him. Now, when it comes down to when he first met Moshe, he didn't know Moshe was a tzaddik. So when he heard that Moshe just ran away from, uh, from uh, Kush because he didn't want to marry them, he didn't care. But then when he said, well, where did you come originally from? So they came from Egypt after I killed the Egyptian. Oh, you're a murderer? He threw him in jail. For how long? Ten years. And during those ten years, Tzipora, Moshe's future wife, fed him every day. 
So after 10 years, she told she told uh, her father, he told, let's check on this guy that you sent to jail 10 years ago. He said, yeah, but I didn't feed him for 10 years. He died. He said, well, let's check. What do you know? Who knows? Maybe he didn't die. He didn't know that she's the one that's feeding him. And he went to the jail and he saw that Moshe is alive and well. He saw oh, something unusual is happening here. Okay, no, you work for me now. Work for me. And as they're walking in the field, Moshe didn't know anything about the staff. He just saw this beautiful thing in the middle of the uh, thing. He was big. He was ten amot. Ten amot is a, uh, like 20 feet. It's huge, according to us. In this day, he wasn't huge. He was big. He saw this staff. He took it out of the ground. No big deal. It was spiritual power. Hashem wanted him to, wanted him to have it, obviously. And as soon as he saw that Moshe was able to take this staff out of the ground, just like you take out a hair out of milk, he said, ah, I have to tell you what I said about the deal whoever takes out the staff, because he's an honest person. He told an honest person. So what do you do? He says, listen, I promise that whoever takes out the staff out of the ground can marry my most beautiful daughter, which happens to be Tzipora. Tzipora, the same one that was feeding Moshe, for all those 10 years and saved his life. So that's the story in regards to the Mate. So what do we learn from the Mate aside from the Midrash and all the amazing stories about the Mate? Anybody know? Anybody want to volunteer what you learned from everything I just said? Aside from what I just said? One simple lesson is that Hashem provides the cure before the ailment. Hashem provided the cure before anyone knew they were sick. Before, before Moshe knew that he needed the staff, Hashem already provided to Adam Arishon. Before he knew that he's going to need it for the for ten plagues, Hashem already created it. Before he knew that he's going to need it in order to meet his wife, Hashem already provided it. Hashem provides the cure before you even know you're sick. And the same thing you'll see in Megillat Esther, highly recommended for everybody to start already reading Megillat Esther with the Midrashim now. Don't wait for Purim. It's, 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 even though it's a small book, you know, it could take you a few days, especially if you have kids and you have stuff to do and you have other limudim to do. You should read Megillat Esther with the Midrash already now. Already now and, uh, and get into it. You'll see that throughout the whole Megillat Esther, there's not one time mention of Hashem. Not a single time is Hashem's name in the Megillah. And not a single time is there an obvious miracle. Meaning there's no, it's not like Egypt, where Hashem turned the water into blood, or there's a frogs, or there's a, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, grasshoppers coming from afar, and they eat everything, and then, but they don't eat the Jews stuff, they just eat the Egyptian stuff. All these different miracles, none of that. All of it seems like it's happenstance, a coincidence. But a lot of coincidences. But only at the end, after you actually understood how all these coincidences actually happen, does it come together and you see, wow, this is Yad Hashem. This is the hand of God. But only at the end do you see all of it. In the beginning you see, why is, what's the difference with Haman? Why is Haman this? Why, is, why does Hashem have to kill Vashti? The whole thing happened many years before. That he got angry 
he got angry and the Hashemus got angry at Vashti and uh, but that was uh, almost 10 years before the whole miracle of Purim happened it's not like it just had all happened it seems like when you read it it seems like everything happened in a week it seems like oh, okay Hashemus got crazy he killed his wife a week later he married uh, Estelle a week later Haman tried killing Mordechai a week later Haman is hanging with his ten sons. It seems like the whole thing is like two weeks, maximum a month. But the whole thing is over a decade. The whole thing takes a long time. You're only going to know this and how it all comes together if you read it with the commentary of who, what, when, and how. Archcroll actually has a very good Megillat Estel for anyone that's an English speaker. It's actually their first book. The first book that Archcroll ever published in the 19, I think it's 1976 or something like that. Over 30 years ago, the first book, the, the whole thing that started Art Scroll. First book, Megillat Estel. First book. They put Megillat Estel with commentary on it. Unbelievable. It was so popular, it was sold out everywhere. It was uh, unbelievable. Start Art Scroll. So, highly recommended. For you guys, if you don't have it, to go pick it up. It's not expensive. It's very cheap. And start reading now. Don't wait for Purim. Because once Purim comes, it's already too late. You have to tell your kids what happened in Purim. What are you going to tell them? Oh, let me read it. What do you mean? You're gonna, by the time you finish, it's going to be Pesach. I need to know now. So start reading it now. So here's one of the lessons we hear from the Mate, from the staff, is that Hashem provides the cure before the ailment. The next thing, Rabotai, is Shamil. Hashamil, that's the special worm. This small worm is the worm that was actually used in the Bet HaMikdash. The Shamil worm, I think, yeah, the Gemara here. Hold on a second. No, not this one. The Gemara in Masechet Sota, page 48b, talks about the Shamir worm. And it says, well, first of all, this, this small worm was the one that would cut the split and split the large stones. Now why? Why did this whole thing happen? Because the mitzvah that uh, Hashem told us in the book of Deuteronomy, Sefer Dvarim, chapter 27, verse 5, it's Hashem told us that in order for us to make the Shamir worm, in order for us to make the stones, the Bet Mikdash, and so on, and also the Choshen of the Kohen Gadol, is that it has to be Malay. What does it mean, Malay? He says that the stone still has to be a complete stone. The one that you're cutting into, that you're engraving into, still has to remain complete. Now, this doesn't make any sense. Why? If I take a stone now, I take a stone, and I engrave in it, whatever I engrave, that little piece, it's not much, but whatever I engrave, the little piece of rock is going to go into the garbage. I'm taking stuff out of the rock. Do you understand? Engraving, engraving, anytime you engrave, you engrave on the wall, or you engrave in, a, in anything else, Whatever you're engraving, that little piece of engravement, that becomes, you know, powder or whatever it is, or a piece of rock, and it goes to waste. 
which means that the rock that you've engraved or whatever you engraved in is technically less than what it was before you engraved. Hashem says the law is it has to remain male. Male means it has to remain complete. So you have to engrave, but it has to stay complete. That's impossible. Physically, you can't engrave it. So what do we have? How do we do it? With the Shamir worm. The Shamir worm didn't engrave it like you engrave today with you take special tools. These artists or different uh, people that deal with, with engravement, they take these special tools to engrave. They didn't use that. What did they do? They had the Shamir worm. The Shamir worm had the, um, the book by Rabbi Zamir Cohen explains how it worked. Very similar to radiation. Very similar to radiation where it would literally cut into the stone. And it would open the stone. Instead of engraving it like you, you're making the stone less, you're just opening the stone. So the stone technically remains the same. It's just that it opens up a little bit. It opens up a little bit, if you get what I'm saying. If you don't, then that's the best I can do. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, go ahead. No. So, so to some extent, it opens it. Not necessarily pushes it in, it just opens it. So for example, let's just say this is the rock and I'm trying to make a, 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 a let's say a vav. A vav is just one straight line. So if I was engraving it, then I would technically do what you're saying, which is I would push it in and whatever is, uh, it goes against it, the pressure would come out, would fall out. What the Shamir worm did would be like a laser. What does a laser do? It opens it up. It just, instead of making it lesser, it just opens it up, which in essence makes the same shape as if I engraved it. But instead of it becoming lesser, it just makes the rock wider. It makes a separation. It makes a separation between it, so it's as if I opened up the book. It's as if I opened up the book. It's the same thing. Nothing changed in the book. It's just that now it's wider. And like you can see, also another thing you can learn from the Shamir Worm is that here in a book, you write stuff in it. You write stuff. Where do you write it? When you learn Torah. Like you guys are supposed to have books in front of you. Also writing what I'm saying? Same thing. That's also you learn from Shemir Worm. So the So you're supposed to write stuff. So now, why? Why, why is it that uh, the uh, Shemir Worm had to be used? Because Hashem wanted it to remain complete. And also there was another rule that you're not allowed to use an iron tool. In the Bet HaMikdash, you're not allowed to use an iron tool on Divrei Kodesh. So, for example, when they want to cut out the special stones for the uniform of the Kohen Gadol, they would use the Shemir worm to cut out the stones into a special shape. When they want to make the huge stones of the Bet HaMikdash, huge stones, now to use, now, there was never, the, the, uh, the uh, Torah says, in Tanakh, there was never a sound of a hammer in the Bet HaMikdash when they were building it. Why? Not allowed to use it. So how do they make all these huge stones? This little tiny worm. Like a little laser. A little laser cutting out. Now you're thinking, oh, it's probably little rocks. Now if you go, there's actually this highly recommended program for anyone that wants to learn Hebrew. The, there's a highly recommend, recommended program that I got familiar with recently. And now, Baruch Hashem, having my, uh, my daughter uh, learn from it also. Uh, but this is for adults, for kids, for, for everyone. 
it's a uh, program you buy it's online for like 50 bucks and it's a combination of videos where Rabbi Gold Tamit uh, Chacham he teaches you uh, Aleph Bet he teaches you the root of the Hebrew language how you make up the words which letter to use what and so on but they also give you digital workbooks meaning you can print them out and you could uh, learn Hebrew this way but for $50 only and you have videos and uh, text and this is highly recommended for everyone for Jews for non-Jews for people that uh, meaning that want to be Jews anyone that wants to learn real Hebrew biblical Hebrew this is the this is something the best I've seen even though I've had other workbooks that have recommended to people in the past this is something that's in my opinion even better because it's video aside from uh, the uh, the writing that's good always it's also video and in today's age we always have to see so this is very very highly recommended um, I think it's the um, what is it called uh, I forget the name I know his name is Rabbi Gold and uh, I forget the name I forget the name but uh, anyone that's interested in it uh, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll post it later on in the uh, groups uh, for you guys to go uh, pick it up it's uh, really really amazing and now actually it's uh, we're using it to teach the kids and also one of the things that why am I remembering this now is because he did something very clever what did he do is that in the beginning of every one of the videos there's maybe I don't know maybe 10 15 videos each one is about an hour uh, beginning of every one of the videos he did something very interesting is they took about maybe five or ten minutes to give you a tour of different parts of Yerushalayim but the biblical tour not just the tour hey look this is the mountains good luck okay let's go to the have falafel no he, he tells you so the first video I was seeing my my daughter was watching it and so the first video was uh, they were showing them the the bottom of the Kotel Maravi, the bottom of the Western Wall where you see they took you through the tunnels I don't know if you've ever been to the tunnels of the Kotel Maravi. And they give you facts, like real facts about this stuff. And they showed the biggest stone. The biggest stone of the Kotel is 500 tons. 500, what's 500 tons? First of all, it's 40 feet long. It's 40 feet long. It's 500 tons. And they said that even the biggest cranes in the world can't even lift half of it today. Even half of that stone they can't lift. The biggest, most powerful st- uh, cranes in the world today can't lift even half of this stone. It's bigger than any stone in the world as far as that was used for structure. But some of the uh, non-religious architects and archaeologists are saying, hey, listen, it's not possible that they lifted it, so they probably just cut it out of a mountain. Probably the mountain, it's on a mountain. It's on a mountain, so they probably just cut it directly out of the mountain and made it a shape of a rock. But that's clearly wrong. Why? It's on top of another stone. Meaning the Mamash lifted this giant stone that today we don't have the technology how to do. We don't have the technology of how to, how to lift such a stone. And how do they make the stone? Shamir worm. Engraved. Shamir worm. Yes. Is that the same stone that David Amelach moved? I don't believe it's the same stone because the, uh, the stone... Uh, this one is very big. The stone of the Bida Melech, I think, is, is, a, is a stone of, uh, I, th- I think, if I remember the Midrash correctly, is the same place where they had Akedat Yitzchak. And also, if I remember the, correctly, also, the, uh, either a Dli or something on that stone spoke to him and told him, don't do it. 
don't do it, and he still did it. He thought it's maybe it's uh, it's uh, like a bad spirit or something saying it, trying to withhold him from doing it. He didn't listen, and uh, it caused a lot of balagan. So anyway, so this Shamir worm was used to cut out these huge giant stones that we don't even have the technology today. With all the fancy schmancy iPads and iPhones and all the stuff that we have today, we could they couldn't have the same technology as what was used to build the Bet Mikdash Hakadosh. And Bezat Hashem, the third one will be even better. Excuse me. It exists. We just don't have it. We don't have it. So the Gemara says in Masechet Sota, Mishcharav Bet Mikdash Batal Hashemir. As soon as the temple was destroyed. The Shamir worm ceased. What does it mean? Ceased? Disappeared. Disappeared. But now, before, before, they built the Beit HaMikdash. What do you think? There was just a bunch of Shamir worms running around? There was no Shamir worms. In the Gemara Masichet Gitin, page 68, it says, actually, a phenomenal story. Phenomenal story of how Shlomo Amelech knew that he's, there's a law. He's not allowed to uh, he's not allowed to cut into the stones. So how could I get this stone? What could I do? How could I uh, how could I get this worm? I need to find this worm to cut into the stones. I can't use hammers. I can't use swords. I have to cut into the stones. I have to find this worm. Where can I find it? We start looking on the floor. Worm, worm, no, no. <laughs> so what are you gonna do? So what did he do? The Gemara says he went to Ben Yo, Benayahu Ben Yoyada. Benayahu Ben Yoyada told him, "I have a source. I have a source that has that could find us the worm. Who is the source? The king of all the demons, Ashmadai. Ashmadai can go find us the uh, the worm." Okay, go get him. Go get him. And they actually, uh, he had to go through a whole uh, balagan to catch. Uh, Yoya, uh, uh, ben Yoyada was an expert in catching demons. He was an expert in catching them. And he caught the king of the demons and he forced him to tell him where to find this, uh, this Shamir worm. He forced him to say, I'm not going to let you go until you tell me where this worm is. Go get him. No, fine, fine. Here's the worm over here. So, very interesting, very interesting uh, world that they lived in. Very, very different world than ours. But also shows this Shamir worm is one of the many things that shows that uh, the world was created for Am Yisrael. Because other than building the Bet HaMikdash, there's absolutely no purpose for the Shamir worm. But this worm was created Ben Hashmashot. Meaning Hashem created it as one of the, one of the one-time miracles. For what? For the Bet Mikdash. For what? For Amisrael. Now this worm, the Gemara says, nothing could hold it. Nothing can contain it. Why? It's all radiation. It's laser. What's going to hold it? First of all, it was tiny. The size of a barley. Tiny little thing. It wasn't like, you're probably thinking it's like a snake. You have like a uh, anaconda. You're having a, you know, fireman's thing. Oh, cutting the stones. No, it's a tiny little thing. It's a tiny little worm, first of all. 
Gemara says it was as small as a barley kernel. But second thing is that nothing can withstand it. Nothing can hold on to it. So how do they stop it? How do they contain it? How, where do they keep it? If you put it in glass, it'll break the glass. You put it in metal, it'll cut through the metal. You put it in clay, it'll break the clay. What they put it in? They wrap it in tufts of wool. And then they put that wool inside a lead tube that's filled with barley. Like there was a special way to contain this thing. You needed three different things to contain it. First you had to wrap it with wool. Inside, around it, you had to put barley, which kind of looks like the worm itself. On top of it, you had to put uh, lead on top of it. Amash, it was like a uh, safe within a safe within a safe. So that, there's actually more details in the uh, the book that uh, we give out in our Kiruv package um, that uh, Science Comes of Age or The Coming Revolution, it's called Both Names by Rabbi Zemir Cohen, talks about the Shamir Worm and uh, shows, Mamash, it's, it's very, very similar to today's, uh, even more advanced than today's laser or radiation systems and so on. So this is another way that we actually see that the world was created for Am Yisrael. Another thing is, is an analogy, or as a like a parallel, I guess, as an analogy, is that we can see that this worm, as strong as it was, you would think that something that's strong should be contained by something even stronger. You know, if it's a diamond, you should put a you should put it into a big safe full of metal. Like one time, one of the uh, very wealthy people that actually uh, some people say it about one of the Ro- the the Rothschild descendants. Originally, Mayor Rothschild was very rich. And very successful, and he started the whole uh, the whole dynasty, and he actually got a blessing from one of the uh, Gedolei Adol. He was a big tzaddik. His descendants weren't all tzaddikim. Kalvachoma today, many of them are not even religious at all, and uh, it's estimated that the family is the richest family in the world, worth north of ten trillion dollars, ten trillion dollars, like something obscene. You know, they say the Forbes 500, the richest man in the world is uh, Jeff Bezos with like something like $100 billion. This is not even like chump change for them. This is like a, uh, a month's interest. $10 trillion. The interest, the interest on $10 trillion is a uh, $500 billion. The interest. So, the uh, one of the descendants had a safe full of gold, diamonds, and everything. And one day, he said, look, I have all this stuff. Okay, somebody tried to tell him the truth. Listen, you should do tshuva. What tshuva? I have everything already. I'm enjoying this world. I have all this money. I have all this gold. What could God do? Take me from the, uh, destroy the whole world. Take my money away. Ah, look, it's all in my safe. And it's what he was saying to himself. 
and uh, heresy and as he finished the sentence his own safe closed on him and it was right before the weekend it's like a Friday afternoon his huge giant safe closed in on him and no one knew it was a huge safe no one knew that he's inside there and the safe closed in on him and now okay an hour, two hours, three hours, a day, no food, no drink, no nothing. All you have is diamonds and gold and money. All of it is worthless now. Why? You need food. You need drink. A day fasting is difficult. Two days fasting, wow. Three days, you're like an angel. Problem is, it was a long weekend. And he knew he was going to die. And he wrote, he wrote everything I'm telling you on the walls with his own blood. That was like his chuva. That was his chuva. He wrote his own story. I believe that uh, nothing can happen to me. I have everything. Look at it. I have all the money in the world, but not a single drop of water. And he wrote it on the wall, the story of what he thought in his mind, and he died inside his own self. So just like all of those people that think that, oh, they have everything and they're enjoying this world, many people bigger than them realized it the hard way, that Hashem could easily take you away from all the things you think you have. So the diamond that, that usually is protected by a big fancy schmancy safe that's hard, you would think that's the way it would, you would protect the Shemir worm that's much even more strong than the, the diamond, much more powerful. But we see it's the opposite. It's held by cotton. It's held by wool. It's held by things that are very, very soft. And we learn from here an analogy that sometimes the most difficult heart just needs, the most hardest heart just needs a few soft words. It's not Musar that's tough, that's hard. It's not always appropriate for everyone. It's not everyone. Some people, yes, some of us have hearts of stone. That the only way for, for, for them to, to, to open up, to become flesh, is if you get a few smashes to the head a few times of real Musar. But sometimes you see this big guy. He looks like he's made of a mountain. And you tell him, listen, God loves you. All of a sudden, you think of, the guy melts into nothing. Why? Wow, God actually cares about me? Yeah, you show him, look in the pasuk, look, Hashem says, he loves you. The guy that is chuba, something small. Some people have neshamot like that. They look tough, but in reality, much, much softer words work for them. In this generation, it's very rare. It's very rare. Most of us are made of stone, but it does exist. It does exist. It's like the Shemir worm. It exists, but it's just far away. Um... Okay, we'll try to do a couple of more. Looks like this uh, may actually have a part four this year. The next one is the Khtav. The Khtav is the script, which is the holy language. The holy language of, uh, of, of Hebrew. That Hashem used that language in order to create the world. Before, the Gemara says, before Hashem created the world, 974 generations before He created the world, He he wrote the Torah. And He used black fire on top of white fire to write the Torah, which I've told you guys many times before. But then the Gemara says, He looked into the Torah and He created the world. He looked into the Torah as a blueprint 
and he created the world meaning he looked in the toy says oh Kosher? Okay, so I have to create kosher animals and non-kosher animals. Do, 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 do. Oh, we have tarat mishpacha. Oh, so I have to create the woman to have the physical makeup where she, part of the day, part of the month she's pure, part of the month she's not pure. And he looked at the uh, he looked at the Torah. He says, Oh, we have mitzvah kriat shema. Okay, so I have to make the prayer of shema yisrael Hashem elokin Hashem echad. Meaning, whatever laws were in the Torah, that's what he used as the blueprint to create the world, not the opposite. Like a lot of people, what you would think logically in a human mind, which is very limited, is that Hashem created the world, and then he wrote a Torah to fit the world. Meaning, he created a bunch of cows, he created a bunch of humans, he created a bunch of trees, he created a bunch of apples and oranges, and all these different things, and then he wrote a Torah to use those tools. Look, we have apples, so make a blessing for the apple. Look, you have a cow, so make a blessing for the cow. Oh, you have a husband, you have a wife, make a blessing for this. Like, meaning, he created the world, and then he created a Torah to fit it. This is 100% opposite. Opposite. What was it? He created a Torah before he created the world, and according to the laws that he wrote in the Torah, he created the world as uh, according to it. Meaning the Torah is a blueprint. Just like builders that build, let's say, for example, they're building already for the last, I don't know, 15 years. They're building the World Trade Center. Now the builders, they don't just go, listen, let's put some rocks together and see what happens. Throw some metals, throw some rocks, hopefully something comes out of it. No. First, for a while, it's blueprints. They design different things. This could be here, this could be here, this could be here. It's negotiations. No, this won't work. Okay, send it to this guy. He'll tell you if it works. I'll tell you what material. No, this material won't work here. This material won't work there. Then you have to go and apply, and so on and so forth. You have to make the whole blueprint. So when, in essence, after you have a real solid blueprint, it's Lego. Why? You already know, at the time you have the blueprint, you know every single screw you're going to need. Every single screw that you're going to need, every single wire you're going to need, you know exactly how much you need of every single stick, of every single piece of wood, of every single stone, how much water. The whole thing goes into it. If you're a really solid builder, like one of these big builders in the world, you're supposed to have a very, very organized blueprint. Why? Because that's how you budget. Now, if you're a terrible builder, you're not going to make it. Why? A lot of these people that try to be builders... Their Abba gives them a little bit of money. He says, yeah, yeah, go build something. So the kid gets a few million dollars from his Abba, and he goes bankrupt after six months. Why? Because he thinks he could build the Eiffel Tower with a couple of million dollars. He doesn't realize all he can build is a foundation. So he got somebody to write a blueprint. He's like, all right, let me just start building from there. You can't do that. You have to have a precise blueprint where you need to know exactly how much material you're going to need because you need to get... The investors to know it ahead of time. Now, if you tell them, listen, it's going to cost us $5 million to build this building, and you already spent $5 million, and the building is not even halfway done, maybe you can convince them to give you another couple of million dollars. But if that couple of million dollars is still not done, what's going to happen? They're going to tell you, listen, we're not going to give you. They're going to wait for you to foreclose. They're going to wait for you to go bankrupt, and then one of them is going to pick it up for $500,000. Why? You're a fool, so they're going to benefit out of it. What, you're going to continue giving you money? Only fools giving you money. That's how it works. So, Hashem, the Avdil, Hashem, 
wrote the blueprint of all blueprints called the Sefer Torah using the Sfat HaKodesh. Using the Sfat HaKodesh. Now, the Mikhtav, the Mikhtav was actually the instrument. Some say it's the actual uh, instrument, a special instrument that Hashem created in order to engrave the tablets. The Ten, the, the ten Commandments, we had two tablets, which by the way were huge. It wasn't like the movie. It was like two little babies. It wasn't like that. They were huge. And uh, the Midrash says that they were literally much, much heavier than the, you know, the, the staff. Those 672 pounds, the, uh, the tablets were much bigger. So how did Moshe Rabbeinu lift these two things? He didn't. Like in the movies, it makes it look like Moshe Rabbeinu lifted it and he threw them like they're little ping pongs. No. His hands were under them. But the actual tablets were so holy, they were levitating by themselves. And as soon as Moshe Rabbeinu saw that Am Yisrael is not worthy, the Kedushah left, and in essence, he, if you will, he removed his hands. And they broke. So it's not like he just threw them across. I hate you guys. Uh. No, it wasn't that. That's, that's not, it's not, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a kid game. It's upset. You know, played a video game. You beat the guy and he throws the joystick, joystick on the TV like he blames the TV. So, oh, I hate it. Why'd you beat me again? I remember when we were kids. We would play, uh, we would play video games, waste our lives playing video games. Somebody at the end, if you play, when you're a little kid, you play video games. It's now you play one or twice. You play the whole day like a marathon, like you're on a race of who can play for many more hours. At some point, one of the kids gets upset, takes the joystick and throws it across the room, and then everybody has to stop playing. Why? It's broken now. No one can play. It's broken. Today's kids probably has 10 joysticks already, but in our life, when we were kids, joysticks broke, no more game. So uh, sometimes it gets really creative. One of them throws the joystick at the other kid. Make sure he feels it. It's his fault. That's life without Torah. What can we do? That's life without Torah. We throw with joysticks. Instead of, instead of learning Torah, we throw joysticks. So Mikhtav, Mikhtav is, a, uh, is the special tool that was used to engrave the tablets. Why was there a need for a special tool? The Gemara in Masechet Megillah, you probably read it already, Masechet Megillah in page 2b, in a commentary over there, but also talks about it in a few other places. Uh, Rabbi Yunah talks about it, is that there was a couple of the letters, the Samech and the Mim. The Samech and the Mim were, are different than the rest of the letters. Why? One of them looks like a square, and the other one looks like a circle. The Samech is like a circle, and the Mim is like a square. Now, why is this significant? Because the special tool that Hashem created here, the Mikhtav, the inscription, it engraved the stones... And engraved the stones in such a way that you could literally the, uh, see the, the actual letters and what's, what's written on it from all sides, from all four sides. So everywhere would look exactly the same. Didn't matter whether you, where you would go. It was like an optical illusion, but it wasn't an optical illusion. But it was engraved through. Now with the Samech and the Mem, nothing was holding them. Because it's a circle. There's no stone. Like if, For example, if, they're, if you're writing an Aleph, so in essence, there's just a hole in the thing of an aleph. But something is holding it to, to, the, to the rest of the tablet. With a samech and a mem, 
It's a complete circle, meaning the inner circle in it is floating in midair. Nothing is holding it to. Nothing is holding it to the to the tablets. So that was the special tool that was in it, and this also goes into it to the luchot abrit. The luchot themselves is the next creation. The original luchot, the original luchot, the original tablets that Hashem created, that Hashem gave Moshe Rabbeinu, there was two sets. The first set that he broke was actually created Ben Hashmashot, with the rest of these uh, rest of these miracles. He created them Ben Hashmashot, and they were also made from the same material as the staff, the Snafrinon. The Snafrinon made, uh, made, uh, was also the tablets. Same type of uh, material, they're one and a half meter by one and a half meter, which is uh, a meter is uh, three feet approximately. So about four and a half feet by four and a half feet. Four and a half feet by four and a half feet. So they're very, very big. And uh, again, remember how heavy the stick was. And the stick was smaller. So this, these, uh, this luchot were actually uh, were broken by Moshe Rabenu, and then when Moshe Rabenu broke them, when he saw Am Yisrael sinning, Hashem said, "Chazak ve'amatz, chazak u'baruch." Good job. Why? They did wrong. They did wrong. They don't deserve the Torah. They don't deserve the Torah. What you did was good. But then later on, he says, "Remember the luchot that you broke." Why? He said, Chazak Baruch, he said. Why are you reminding me that I broke him? If he's saying, listen, good job that uh, you, uh, you fired that guy. Good job you fired that guy. He was, uh, was a terrible employee. And then later on, he say, oh yeah, you remember that guy that uh, you fired? Why are you reminding me of it? It's a bad experience. Why are you reminding me of something bad? Why? In essence, it's also a rebuke on Moshe Rabbeinu. If it wasn't written, we wouldn't be allowed to say it. What was the rebuke? Technically, the ones that started this whole idolatry, the Cheta Egel, were the Erev Rav. Who were the Erev Rav? The Erev Rav were the Egyptians that Moshe Rabbeinu brought on board to convert to Judaism and accept the Torah without consulting with Hashem. He didn't consult with Hashem, and that's what happened with Erev Rav, and until this day, we're suffering from them. Some of these Erev Rav are government members. Some of these Erev Rav are running big uh, synagogues. Some of these Erev Rav are organizing poker tournaments inside, inside the uh, synagogues. Some of them are reform. Some of them are conservative. Some of them are orthodox. We're still suffering from the seed of Erev Rav until this day. And we had a shiur about Erev Rav and the details of what the Zohar Kadosh says about Erev Rav. It is very, very extensive. And unfortunately, until the Mashiach comes, we're going to suffer from them. Even more so as we get closer to Mashiach. So a lot of the things that you see in the world that are upside down, you see certain rabbis doing things that are the opposite of what halacha is. You see certain, uh, you know, kosher organizations, or used to be kosher organizations doing the opposite of what they were built on. That's the Erev Rav. Not necessarily every single member. Whoever's leading it. Whoever's leading it is the uh, paro of the generation. So I think... I mean, we have, let's see. There's a, uh, the uh, Zog says that there's uh, 
five different seeds, five different things that uh, are, uh, in essence, part of the same disaster. Amalek is one of them, Erevav is another one of them, the Nephilim. So it's not necessarily who's worse, it's uh, who's, who's not worse. Zenevilav is a One is a dead animal, and one is a non-kosher slaughter. Meaning they're both bad. They're both bad. The problem with with a um, Amalek is that Amalek actively tries to kill us. Amalek is Nazi Germany. The Gemara in Masechet Megillah, page 6b, says, Zegermane Zedum. Gemara, already a thousand years, a thousand years before Germany was even uh, a creation, before Germany was even on the map, before Germany was a country, the Gemara already says there's going to be a country named Germania. Germania in Hebrew means Germany. And that country is going to try to destroy the world. And what's that country? That's Edom. What's Edom? Amalek. That's already in the Gemara, a prophecy that Germany is going to come into being almost a thousand years before it did. So Amalek is Esav. The problem is that when we see Esav, it's a uh, difficulty, but we know it's a self. But Yaakov Avinu gives us a prophecy. When he says to, when he's about to go back to meet his father again, to go visit his father, he knows he has to run into his brother Esav. And the book says, in the book of Genesis, it says, Save me, Hashem, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav. Wait, his brother is Esav. Why does he say, save me from my brother, save me from Esav? It's the same person. What do we learn from here? When it's Esav, I know it's Esav. Why? He's trying to kill me. I'm more scared of my brother. Why? Because my brother, he looks like me, acts like me, but in reality, he's going to kill me. The more difficulty is with Erevrav. Why? They look like our brothers. They look like our brothers. They look like rabbis sometimes. They look like politicians. They look like governor members. They look like they're, uh, they're part of us. They're in the army with us. They're well, everything. Yaakov says, Save me from the hand of my brother. Save me from the hand of Esav. Because Esav, I'm scared of him too. But I know who he is. He, he has a knife in his hand. So I know he's coming to kill me. Yadachi, the hand of my brother, I don't know. He looks kosher. His beard is sweeping the floor. He's got a hat that reaches the ceiling. And so on and so forth. See, some people don't get the message. They keep calling over and over and over again, thinking that if they just call me 60,000 times, that I'm going to answer eventually. I don't answer even if it's not during the lecture. But they figure that if they call me at midnight, it's even better. So what's the question? Esav Zedom. Esav Zedom, the Gemara Masechet Megillah, talks about how Esav is the uh, forefather of Le'avdil, uh, just like we have Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Esav is a, uh, the father of uh, Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the father of Amalek. 
meaning that Amalek, the original Amalek, is the grandson of Esav. And in essence, Amalek is taking vengeance. Is taking vengeance on the descendants of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov because Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov did not accept his mother to convert. His mother, Timna, tried to convert and didn't accept her. They didn't think she was righteous. So they didn't accept her. So, it, so Amalek, until this day, in essence, is taking a spiritual revenge against Am Yisrael, the descendants of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And we see throughout all of history in the, in the book of Exodus that uh, Amalek tried to attack us from the back and Hashem said that uh, He promises us that He's going to destroy them eventually. And But this is one of the tools that He uses to wake us up. This is one of the tools that He uses to help force us to do tshuva. And Amalek has appeared throughout history multiple times against Moshe Rabbeinu, against Shaul HaMelech, uh, against uh, Am Yisrael in, in Megillat Esther, and also recently, seven years ago, Nazi Germany. So, not necessarily all Christians are Amalek. Not necessarily all Christians are Edom. Uh, but it does come from that part of the world. It does come from that part of the world that it is Edom. But not all of them, obviously, not all of them are Amalek. They could be Edom, but they could not necessarily, they're not necessarily Amalek. Amalek is just a small section within, within Edom. And not all of Edom is going to remain so. It's not all of it is going to remain so. One second. So the Midrash, Midrash says, somebody asked me this wonderful question the other day. It says in one of the Midrashim that Edom, Edom is a pig. Edom is like a pig. Why is Edom like a pig? Sounds like we're uh, Torah's racist. Wait, if Hashem created the Goyim, why is he calling them a pig? So the halacha is, is that Esav sonet Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he goes around in the middle of the street and protests uh, anti-Semitic comments. The most difficult part with Edom is the fact that Sometimes they're going to welcome us. Sometimes they're going to invite us in. Sometimes these Christians seem like they're extremely friendly people. They seem like they're very, very friendly people. They're going to fund, uh, you know, your aliyah to Israel. They're going to pay for your moving costs like they wanted to do for one of my students. Uh, or they're going to invite you into their uh, museums and so on and so forth. They seem very friendly. They want to help you financially. But the Allah is you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to take it because Esav sonet Yaakov. What does it mean? There has to ha- they have to have some type of a hidden agenda. Just like the pig. The pig has one of the signs of a kosher animal. It's one of the signs. So it confuses a lot of people to think that the pig is kosher. In reality, he's not kosher. So unless you look deeply, you're not going to know. You're not going to know. So with a dome, unless you look deeply, you're not going to know if they're your friend or your foe. You're not going to know. So a lot of people think, oh, yeah, this guy's been nice to me for 20 years. He's my partner. Or this woman, she's been nice to me for 20 years, so she's, she's good, she's good. Not necessarily. Why? We saw it during the Holocaust that there's many stories because there was a lot of intermarriage during, uh, before the Holocaust. And one of the famous stories is that uh, one guy was, uh, they were all on the line. They were all on the line in the Hashem in the Nazi camps. 
and one of the guys was uh, smashing his head against the wall like ridiculously hard making himself bleed and one of the other Jews said stop listen they're probably gonna kill us anyway you don't have to kill yourself he goes, no I deserve it I deserve it and he just kept, kept smashing his head until they restrained him and said stop what happened why why for what why are you doing this to yourself it's not your fault that you're here he goes it is my fault he goes why is it your fault he said my mother and my father told me not to marry a non-jew but one day I found a non-jewish woman and she was really nice to me and I said you know what the heck with my mom and my dad they don't know her they don't know her she's better than them this that and the other I married her so the guy's like listen a lot of people married uh, non-jews well you're the only one says, no you don't understand we had a great marriage oh okay so what's the problem because no no you don't understand we had a baby okay so what's the problem he said you don't understand you see that line the beginning of the line okay and he sees a bunch of Nazis over there women men so he goes you see the one the Nazi that's holding a baby that's my wife she's the one that put me here she's the one that put me here you understand so no it's a different story so the thing is though is that it's Allah Allah means it's a fact of life now that doesn't necessarily mean that every single non-jew is not good there's many of them that are called the righteous among the nations how righteous righteous to such a point that even the worst type that came from the worst source the descendants of Haman Rasha, who was Amalek himself. Haman was Amalek himself. The Gemara says his descendants became huge rabbis in Bnei Brak. They converted to Judaism and became huge rabbis in Bnei Brak. Meaning, everyone can purify themselves. It's not no one is predestined to be a Rasha. Everyone, regardless of what the source is, whether their father is Amalek himself. Or a sav, or someone in between, everyone can be righteous if they choose to be. That's why there's actually a recently there was a story that I think the granddaughter or some type of a uh, relative to one of the top Nazi commanders became an Orthodox Jew. Recently, Mamas, like I heard the story maybe four or five months ago, and she she never told anybody. Until recently, after she converted and everything, she says, listen, I'm related to this Nazi, so on and so forth, but she's Sadiqa. So, the Torah is not telling us that it's predestined that someone that's uh, a descendant of Esav is going to be a Rasha, or someone that's not Jewish is bad. We're not saying that. We're not saying that. There's many of them that are very good. Many of them are lovers of Israel, but without a hidden intention like these Christians that, you know, they pretend to be lovers of Israel, but in reality, they're just trying to mass convert. You know, they're, they're saying, yo, we love Israel, we love Israel, we'll even give you money. Why are they giving you money? So you give them your phone number, so you give them your address, you give them pretty much, they know exactly where you are, so they can send their leeches, missionaries, to your house nonstop until you convert. And people that don't, that are not glued to Hashem, fall. One after another. One after another. People think that Jews converting to Christianity was something from like a long time ago. This is completely false. Just in recent years, Jews for Judaism, 
a very uh, top-notch organization run by Rabbi Skobak, did a research, and they said that over a half a million Jews in recent history, over a half a million Jews have converted to Christianity. Half a million! You know what a half a million is? If you say half a million in America, who cares a half a million? They have 400 million people. Half a million people die from cigarettes. And nobody feels it. Half a million. What's a half a million? Big deal, half a million. We have 400 million. Obviously, that's 20 million at best. We have 20 million. Half a million. Half a million. You talk about a significant percentage of, of the entire nation. Significant percentage of the entire nation. Not a, uh, it's not small. You half a million, you do that, uh, you do that a few times, finish the people. Half a million, just to give you guys some statistics, you get to understand the magnitude of what a half a million means. I mean, percentage-wise, it's only 3%. It doesn't seem like much. It doesn't seem like much. But a, a uh, half a million, there's about 6 million Jews in America. How many of them do you think keep Shabbat? Six million Jews in America. How many of the American Jews keep Shabbat? Six hundred thousand. Six hundred thousand Jews in America keep Shabbat. That means that the half a million that converted to Christianity is almost as many as what we have religious Jews in all of America. I'll give you some other sickening facts since we're already on this topic and we're going to have to have another show about this anyway. 68%, 68% 68%, 68% of American Jews. So you're talking about 4.9 million almost. 70% of 6 million, that's approximately 4.9 million. 68% of Jews in America do not believe that you have to believe in God in order to be a Jew. They do not believe that believing in God is compatible with Judaism, meaning it's not an obligation. Like Judaism is like a cult. It's not a religion. 68%, Rabotai, 68%. This is not a small number. 68%. You're talking about the majority. The majority of Jews in America, so it's a little over 4 million. I was wrong. So if 70% of uh, 6 million is 4.2 million, so it's a little over 4 million. 68% do not believe that you have to believe in God in order to be a Jew. I'll give you another one. 60% of Jews in America, average, marry non-Jews. 60%. In some parts of America, it's over 90%. In some parts of America, it's over 90%. Statistically, when you include, when you throw the Orthodox in there also, which is a very, very low, it completely distorts the numbers. It distorts the numbers, the Orthodox, because it's very low, intermarriage in Orthodox world. So it distorts the numbers. You're going from 80% in Reform, 78% of Reform Jews marry non-Jews, 85% of secular Jews marry non-Jews, and then you have the religious Jews, you have 3% go off the Derech. Distorts the numbers. So 6 out of 10 Jews marry non-Jews in America. And out of those Jews that marry non-Jews, 20% of them only 20% of them marry, uh, um, raise their kids as Jewish. Meaning, whoever intermarries decides that Judaism is for other people. I'll give you a last thing and then we'll finish because it's getting late and we're going to have to have another shoe anyway. 
a lot of people think, like I used to think, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. If she wants to convert, let her convert. If he wants to convert, let him convert. If they don't, it's their business. What do I care? People think that intermarriage is not a big deal. Why? You live long enough with the non-Jews, you easily become one with them. You relate to them sometimes more than the Jews. I can tell you personally, personally, from my own personal experience, before doing tshuva, I had virtually no Jewish friends. No Jewish girlfriends, no Jewish boyfriends, no Jewish nothing. Nothing. Why? Didn't connect to them at all. I knew a few Jewish people. They weren't my friends, though. As a matter of fact, the only experiences I ever had with Jews were bad ones. Every single Jewish friend was not exactly a friend. Many of the enemies that I told you about were Jews. All my experiences with Jews were bad ones. So what, what do I want to be a friend with? For what? So, in a secular world, you are, it's much easier for you to connect with non-Jews. First of all, there's more of them. And second of all, it's, I don't know, for some reason or another, we tend to get along easier. Whatever the reason is. So people think that it's okay to be secular, it's okay to be reformed, it's okay to be conservative, it's okay to be whatever you want. So I'll give you some statistics. They did a research, PW Research did all these research, these numbers that I'm telling you. And this particular research, I remember it, I, I remember reading about it a few years ago, but uh, Amos actually gave me this uh, graph, makes it look nicer. And it gives you an understanding of just what it means when the Rambam says you have to have schut to do tshuva. You have to have merit to do tshuva. And just like we had many miracles happen in Egypt, the same thing is going to happen before Mashiach comes, but much worse. There was three days of darkness in Egypt which is a time where Hashem killed both the Egyptians and the Jews that did not want to do tshuva. The days before Mashiach comes, there'll be 15 days of darkness. Worse. 15 days. Five times more. And only those that hold on to the truth 100%. 100% are going to survive. No more 50-50. No more datiloni. No more I'm traditional. No more I'm half religious or I'm 70%. The Gemara says the Mashiach is only going to come to, to a generation where everyone's righteous or everyone's wicked. So the Chachamim says it's not possible for everyone to be righteous or everyone be wicked. There's always going to be some and some. He says, no, no. It's only, the Mashiach is going to come. He's going to save only the ones that are 100% righteous. He's going to destroy the ones that are 100% wicked. There's not going to be anybody in the middle anymore. No more 50%. No more I'm religious sometimes. I'm religious, but I go to the casino. I'm religious, but uh, I, uh, I, I like to hear uh, speeches from uh, missionaries. No more. This fact puts everything into perspective. They did a four-generation research. A hundred secular Jews, a hundred reformed Jews, a hundred conservative Jews, a hundred centrist Orthodox, which means like traditional somewhat, and a hundred Hasidish, meaning Haredim. And they wanted to see how many Jews are they going to be after four generations. Statistically speaking, it's always supposed to grow. If you have a hundred Irish people, after four generations, there should be more than a hundred. Why? You have babies. A hundred have babies. They get married. Hundred becomes two hundred. Two hundred becomes four hundred. Four hundred becomes eight hundred and so on and so forth. That's how population growth works everywhere. As long as you have, statistically speaking, 2.4 kids, the population grows. 2.4 kids. If you're having less than 2.4 kids, 
it stagnates. If you're having less than 2.1, it starts shrinking. If you're having 1.9, you start dying. This is statistically speaking. If you guys want to double-check the numbers, you can. Enjoy. The point being is that you have to have kids in order to grow. You can't have, ki- you can't have kids in your imagination. You have to have kids in reality. And not just like pictures of kids on the internet. You have, you have, to, you have to have your own kids. So now, four generations of Hasidic Jews grew to exactly 3,398. 100, Baruch Hashem, grew to 3,398. Why? 0% intermarriage. PW Research Report 2013. 0% intermarriage. That means that everyone that had kids, they stayed Jews. Average number of children per woman, 6.45. Much higher than the actual average in America. Centrist Jews, which is a combination of Orthodox, modern Orthodox, whatever, they're religious, but they're not uh, Hasidish. They're not, they worry about money a little too much. So they're not going to have as many kids. They're not going to have six and a half kids. They're going to have 2.96. Still a lot. Three kids every family. Still good. A hundred, just you would think, half the amount of kids, half the amount of growth, right? Statistically, that's how your brain works. Instead of 3,400, it should be 1,700. Wrong. Four generations, 337. 10%. Half the number of kids, only 10% of the number of people. That's how much of a difference it makes. People think, no, no, it's, it's going to be fine. Not going to be fine. Big difference. Three kids, after four generations, you're only going to have 337. Three times, you know, you're going to pretty much triple yourself. Six kids, which is double, doesn't it? It seems maybe it should be 600. No. Because of the cumulative effect, after four generations, you're talking about ten times more. Ten times more. Said though, there's still Jewish though at least. Oh Hashem. Now you're thinking, where's the problem area? The problem area is of just don't be conservative. Just don't be reform. Right? Be secular at least. Okay, Mechal Shabbat, but be secular. Be secular, at least. uh, Let's see what they have. Conservative, have a 24% intermarriage. 24% only. 24%, by the way, is not so bad. Why? Statistically speaking in America, where I just told you we have over 60%. Conservative, in the year 2013, had 24%, meaning less than the average, with only a 24% intermarriage rate. An average number of children per woman of 1.82. So it's less, because now we're worried more about the God of money instead of the God of Am Yisrael. How many we have left? 52. 100? Dropped in half. 100 Jews became 52. 100 Jews, Shem HaChem, became 52. From what? Just a little bit less kids. And just a little bit of intermarriage. A little bit. Not, we're not talking about 60% intermarriage. 24%. 24% intermarriage. We only have 52 left after four generations. Meaning, Ami just shrunk. We went from 20 million to 10. 10 to 5, 5 to 2.5, 2.5 to 1.2, 1.2 to 600,000. Shemachem, nothing. Zero. We're talking about within a matter of a couple of generations more, zero. Nothing left. You're thinking it's the worst? Wrong. 
Moving on to the reform. Reform, you're thinking, oh, Shem and what's happening with them? Why? 79% intermarriage. 79% intermarriage. Meaning, it's almost impossible to marry another Jew if you're a reform. You look weird. What are you doing? What are you marrying a Jew for? What's wrong? Even the rabbi is not a Jew. Even the rabbi is not a Jew. What are you marrying a Jew for? What are you crazy? A hundred reform after four generations, Rabotai Karim, with only 1.73 kids. How much left? 13. 13 left. 100 just dropped 87%. 100 just dropped 87%. There's only 13 left after four generations. Hashem Yachim. Why? Lots of intermarriage and very few kids. Now you would think this is the worst. I thought this is the worst. It cannot get any worse than this. 100 became 13. What's it going to be? 100 became 13. Finished. That's it. Okay, reform. They give bar mitzvahs to dogs. They're the worst. No? Wrong. Who's the worst? The secular Jew. The secular Jew, the one that's traditional, like he does kiddush on the wine and on the car at the same time on Shabbat. He does kiddush on the wine, it's a Shabbat, but then he violates Shabbat. He says, and Am Yisrael kept the Shabbat, but he does kiddush on the wine, and then 20 minutes later he does kiddush on the car when he goes to the club. Like I saw Hashem Echem in a video today, somebody sent me, wanted to give me kaparat avonot. I almost had a heart attack when I saw it. They had, they wanted to give me, people like to give me kaparat avonot. So, what they do, they send me a video of 20 old people, 20 people, youngest among them was 75, oldest was 95, and they do Shabbat. Every Shabbat they do together. Where do they do it every week? Every week, same place. Where? Wendy's. They do Shabbat dinner at Wendy's, eating non-kosher food, taref, pigs, Milk and meat, and they buy it on Shabbat, everything. And they do Kiddush on the Wendy's. Uh, 20 of them. 20 of them. This is this is Jew. They all do Bracha. They say, they say, they say the Bracha correctly. Somebody likes to give me Kaparat Avonot. They send me this video, Baruch Hashem. I had a nice Kaparat Avonot before I got here today. So now, you would think the secular Jew is not so bad. Well, okay, so he doesn't keep Shabbat. Big deal. Okay, so he doesn't keep kosher. Big deal. Okay, so he's not so religious. So she wears a mini skirt. Big deal. What, everybody's going to go to Gainom except you? That's what everybody tells me all the time. What, everybody's going to go to Gainom except you? Everybody? Like I made the numbers. Like I did this. It's more dangerous to be secular than reformed. It's more dangerous to be secular than conservative. It's more dangerous to be secular than anything else. Why? 100 secular Jews after four generations, according to PW research. 100 secular Jews have an average of intermarriage of 85%. They're even worse than the reform. And because of the intermarriage is so high and their interest in Hashemit Bach is so low, the number of kids that an average woman has is only 1.45 because she's very interested in her career to be CEO of Starbucks, CEO of Bank of America, CEO of Pepsi, CEO of a big company. She's interested in that. She's not interested in having kids. Kids slow her down. So she's only going to have one half kids, meaning a kid and a dog, maybe a cat too. And marrying a non-Jew, it's a partner in a business. What's the big deal? 
100 secular Jews after four generations, Rabotaye Karim, I'm sad to say we're left with four. Four. That's it. 100 secular Jews dropped 96%, meaning they are one generation away from disappearing to zero. If that much. Meaning, after five generations, zero. Most likely four and a half. In reality, conservative are about two generations away. If there are four generations, they're down from 100 to 52. That means they're one to two generations away from being zero. At best, three. Because the intermarriage rate is low. Or at least it was in 2013. Now it's higher. Reform, one generation away. Why? 100 went down to 13. They're one generation away from being zero. Secular, maybe not even one generation more. After five generations, definitely zero, but most likely after four and a half. Why? After four generations, 100 went down to four. Rabotai Karim, when Rambam said, you have to have merit to do tshuva, he wasn't just referring to the fact that you're going to get the Gan Eden. He wasn't just talking about the fact that Mashiach is going to save you. He was also telling you, you have to have merit because the only way you're going to remain a Jew, period, is if you do tshuva. Forget about you're going to get Mashiach, Olam Abba, and all the good, wonderful things that we're all waiting for and working really hard about. To remain a Jew, you have to be the most religious person you know. Because even the ones that were like middle of the road weren't growing as much as the ones that were Haredim. This is statistics. This is not some uh, political or religious agenda. This is pure statistics. Pure statistics. And to be honest with you, according to my information and what I've seen from experience, if it wasn't for the converts we'd have no hope whatsoever. There's many, Baruch Hashem, there's many converts joining Am Yisrael, so at least we're getting, getting some here and there that are joining Am Yisrael, but there's nowhere near as many as we're losing. The biggest reason of why we're losing, we're losing the battle, is because there's very, very few truth salespeople. There's very few people that are willing to tell you the truth, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you believe, regardless of how you're going to feel, in fact, what they prefer to do is they prefer to lower the synagogue from being a place of holiness into a place like a casino. And that's why the Sabah Mislovotka, who used to make fun of the German Nazis, when people would tell him, why are you making fun of the Nazis, meaning the Germans, before the war? They're the most civilized people around. They always say thank you. They always say uh, nice things. They're very polite. Look how they treat their dogs. Look how they treat their dogs. They give respect to the dogs for the Rav. I mean, this is a upper echelon people. He said the same Nazi, the same German that's treating his dog that way is eventually going to treat the human being worse. The same Nazi is going to use all the honor that he's supposed to give a human being but instead he's giving it to a dog he's going to give all of the bad things to the human being and eventually that all happened 
But last but not least, he had a very famous saying. The Sabbamis Labotka had a very famous saying, saying, Im Yehudi, lo se kiddush, as a goy, yase avdala. If the Jew doesn't sanctify himself by making a kiddush, then the non-Jew is going to do avdala. Meaning, if the Jew does not sanctify himself and get close to the point where he's glued to Hashem, eventually Hashem is going to use the non-Jew to separate him. That's why Hashem let Amalek live. It's not because he likes them. In fact, he hates them. But it's a necessary tool. No different than all the other tools that he has, whether it's tornadoes, or it's stock market crashes, or it's cancer, or it's AIDS, or it's all types of things that he has in the world. So for all of us that want to have a fighting chance to survive, you have to get glued to Hashem. Jew, non-Jew, get glued to Hashem. Get glued to Hashem. Everybody has an opportunity. Everybody has a fair chance now. Everybody has a fair chance now. Once Mashiach comes, chance is over. But don't wait for the statistics to get any worse. Why? You stay secular. You're only a couple of generations away from being, being nothing. Being nothing. So, this Mishnah uh, is going to need another shiur, but Zat Hashem will do tomorrow. But uh, I think this uh, covers a lot. Covers a lot of what we need to hear. Obviously, this uh, intermarriage situation has to be addressed because in today's world people think it's okay just like I used to think it's okay. I used to think it's not really such a big deal. But in reality when you look at the numbers it's a, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So it's time for everybody that is intermarried take things seriously and decide do you really love yourself or do you love your spouse? If you love yourself only good. Find the truth for yourself. If you love your spouse, good. Find the truth for yourself also. Either way, you have to find the truth. Either way, you have to do something about it. Because to allow kids to grow up with, uh, you know, with a choice in the air of what they're going to do, what they're going to be, are they going to be Jewish, are they going to be Catholic, are they going to be this, are they going to be that, all you're doing is you're creating a little uh, confused person that's not going to know which way and most likely going to become atheist. Most of the people that are atheists come from mixed families, come from families that are, uh, you know, were either agnostic, they call themselves, or uh, some other mix. And the kids get so confused that they end up hating Hashem. They blame Hashem for their family's confusion. So whoever's already intermarried, it's not too late. Take things seriously. Learn the truth. Get your spouse to learn the truth. And get going. Get going. Why am I not saying you should leave each other? Because I know you're not going to do it anyway. Why? Well, I, I didn't. Anybody that would have told me to leave my wife, I would have thrown them out of the window. Why? Were you there for me when I was bleeding out of every hole in my body? Were you there when uh, I was crying my eyes out? There was blood coming out of my eyes? Were you there? Were you there when I was losing every penny? Were you there when I was suffering? Were you there when I was crying, screaming for, for months in a row with no break? Were you there? No. So she was. I'm not leaving. If you have the same kind of wife, shlecha, stick with her. She's a good person. Same kind of husband, stick with him. If not, then leave, obviously. 
If you already have a bad marriage and it's intermarriage, then leave. But if it's a good marriage, a good good couple, then do the right thing. Get them close to Hashem. But that's it, Rabotai. It's not so easy, but it's not impossible either. If you take things seriously, Hashem will make the way. Someone that comes to become purified, Hashem gives them a hand. But someone that makes a joke out of it, Hashem will never let them convert, will never let them do tshuva, will never let them succeed. All He would let them do is make themselves more impure. Hashem is not our buddy. He's not a, uh, he's not, we can't joke around with Him. And that's one of the things that people don't understand. And that's the secular mentality. The secular mentality is that Hashem is just going to wait for me to do tshuva eventually. He's happy with the half a kiddush that I do. And that's why, according to statistics, He's eliminating it. That's why you're seeing a hundred turn into four. It's even worse than the kofel, the, the conservative. That, that, that speaks volumes to me. Anybody sees the number, you would think that the conservative is much worse. Apparently, according to the numbers, Hashem uh, doesn't like the other one even worse.